Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. This is the BK and Ferrario Podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Side Fiala in back door wide open goal. Johansson. The Blues broke down in their own end and a wide open. Johansson will never find an easier goal than that, and it's one nothing Minnesota. Skated in. Caprasov oh. shoots and scars. What a goal. Blues have a chance to shoot the puck on one end of the ice, decide to get cute with it, and it ends up in their net. It's Caprasov. 2 0 the final tonight. The St. Louis Blues fall to the Minnesota Wild. And the Blues still trying to find enough guys pulling the rope. That's what it sounded like right here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN last night as the Blues lose 2 to nothing against the Minnesota Wild. Now, they did outshoot the Wild 37-11 to in that game. Nearly tripled their shots. But somehow they found a way to lose. And with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We're broadcasting live from the new ENB Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Alex, last night, I didn't feel super pessimistic coming off of that game just because I thought they played the process of the game. They played much better than they did in the game against Vegas. But... A loss is a loss is a loss. They lose 2 nothing. How'd you feel after that one? Yeah, I mean, essentially at the end of the game, the only thing I can think is you just lost another two points that you really needed. I mean, you were four points behind Minnesota for third place in the division. Now you're six points behind them. So that hurts. But overall, that was progress for me. Like, that was a step in the different direction. It wasn't a embarrassing loss like they've had in the last three against the Vegas Golden Knights. But here's the problem. They're still not outworking the goaltending and the defense on the opposite side. I mean, 37 shots is great. 68 shot attempts is awesome. But I would tell you that probably 75% of those shot attempts, if not 80%, were to the outside of the middle of the ice. There was no high danger scoring opportunities for the Blues in that game, it felt like. Um, there were some positives, though. I mean, you got 16 shots from Tarasenko and Perron on goal. And I think Berube nailed it on the head after the game last night. He said, you do that in any other game, these guys are going to score at least a couple of goals. So that's something to build off of. Defensively, I thought they played a really sound performance. Um, 11, shot on, 11 shots on goal from Minnesota, which is a very high danger scoring team. But you still gave up those two those two goals. And, and that's the problem, right? Like you can lose 2 nothing and say the effort was great. 
but you still gave up those two odd man rushes and you didn't make the stops when you need them to. So as as much as I don't want to be pessimistic and I shouldn't be pessimistic because it was a good 60-minute performance. On the other hand, though, it still wasn't enough. And if this was February, I'd be saying, yeah, this team's going to be fine. But now we're two, two games away from being done with March, and you are finding yourself way too close to being out of a playoff spot. I always like listening to Craig Berube's postgame comments because I think it gives you a little bit of an idea of what he's saying inside of that locker room. And last night I came away listening to Craig Berube thinking, oh, he likes the way his team played last night. And he opened things up by talking about how if the Blues continue to play that style of game in the future, they're going to win more often than not. There was a ton of uh, real good chances. We just weren't clean with it a lot of times. You know, I think you give uh, Vladdy and Perron the chan- that, that many shots that they got tonight and that many chances on a normal night, they're probably going to score a couple. The Blues outshot them 37-11. to 11. So I looked this up, Alex, in terms of teams that shot at least 35 shots on goal and had at 15 or fewer against, right? 35 or more for, 15 or fewer against. It has happened 16 times over the last five years in the regular season. Total of 16 times, which is wild. I would have thought that it happened more often than that, but it's a hard thing to do. Of those 16 games, the teams that had the, had the blue side of things in this one, that outshot their opponent by that kind of a margin, were 10-5-1. You expect to win a game like that. You should win a game like that. And they just couldn't figure it out last night. For whatever reason, you're going up against a hot goaltender. You thought going on a back-to-back when they had just played the previous night. Maybe he's a little worn down. He wasn't. He looked excellent for Minnesota. They just made plays that the Blues didn't. And so my biggest frustration coming off of that one was you still had a couple of those weird turnovers that led to the rush going the other direction. You had a couple of shots, at least one for sure, that I know if you asked Bennington after the game, he would have told you should have had that one. That's frustrating to continue to watch. I actually left that one feeling a little more optimistic. I know that Thomas had one of the bad turnovers that led to the rush going the other direction. I thought he looked pretty good on the power play, though. I thought there were some moments where still want him to shoot more often, still want him to get that shot going, but he had a few really good looks uh, for his teammates on the power play, and that was nice to see. Like you said, Vladdy, um, Perron, both looked really good last night. Vladdy looks like he's close. Uh, He's looking like he's getting close to being back to being himself. I actually left that one feeling better about the Blues play than I felt about it coming in. What's frustrating, though, is when you play that well and you're on a slide like this, you have to come away with points, like you said, because they're now getting into the crunch of things where if you don't start winning those types of games over the next week or two weeks, it could avalanche on you quick, no pun intended, because the other teams that are in this division are playing really well right now. Vegas is running away with this thing. The Colorado Avalanche, I told you this during the break, Alex, they are just dominating team since they've been healthy unlike the blues who got healthy and haven't really started to dominate in the last 10 games colorado has defeated their opponents by a combined score of 43 to 16 yep those are your top two teams in the division without as we question. All expected. minnesota looks like the third best team in the division right now so the blues are in a fight for their lives to be in that fourth spot moving forward and they've got to win games like that to be able to get it yeah they do and look you're three points ahead of arizona was arizona has a game in hand on you um, you're four points ahead of L.A. as they have two games in hand on you, if I'm not mistaken. So those are two teams that, one, have given you fits this year, 
and you play L.A. one more time whenever that game gets rescheduled. You play Arizona one more time whenever that game, and I think that's in the uh, later portion of April. So there's two games right there that you got to win. You play Anaheim for two games in this series, and then you play Got to win both, by the you way. You have to this win both. This is a series you have to dominate. And then you play two more against Anaheim, another four games that you have to win. But then the rest of them, I mean, you play seven more times against Minnesota, six more times against Colorado, and four more times against Vegas, I believe. Here's the problem, though, BK. You're playing those three teams the most the rest of the season, which means L.A. and Arizona are playing San Jose and Anaheim. That's where things get concerning. So they're going to have to turn this around. And as much as, again, I want to be pessimistic and say, like, this is in the right direction, and I do feel like it is going in the right direction, you've got to start cashing in with victories rather than saying we're building. And I talked about this on the postgame last night with Curbs. Go back two years ago before the Blues went on an 11-game win streak. They were on a West Coast trip, and they were still losing. But Craig Berube said it's trending in the right direction. And we were like, okay, we've been saying that since October. This team's been terrible. You can keep saying that all you want, but then they started to go on a win streak. I'm not saying this team's going to go on an 11-game win streak, but what I am saying is hopefully if last night is the way that you see it and the way that I'm difficult or trying to see it, if that's true and it's trending, then hopefully they can break through with these two against Anaheim and build the confidence when you open up April. Because if not, there's going to be problems. And I, I struggled so much being hard on these guys last night because that was an emotional game. Yeah, like th- I went into that one telling myself if they lose this one, I can't be that upset because that had to have been so difficult for some of those guys last night to grind through 60 minutes. And it opened up the way I I didn't see it coming. I should have though because Braden Shin, we all knew we shot we all should have knew, known that he was going to do exactly this. Right off the bat, Braden Shen is going to drop the gloves with Hartman. Hartman coming across with a right. Shen lands three more rights. They fall to the ice. Shen gives Hartman a pat on the shoulder. And there you go, Bobby. That's how you start a hockey game in Minnesota. What a leader, a guy that recognizes the moment. Curbs, I'm, I'm almost speechless. I could not believe this game started this way. I don't know why I'm surprised, but Braden Shen in remembrance of Bobby Plager. Curbs and Joey with the call last night right here on 101 ESPN. Should have seen it coming. Didn't see it coming, should have seen it coming. Yep. By the way, huge kudos to Hartman as well. Because that that is you're basically you're out for the next five minutes, right? You can't you can't help your team for the next five right. minutes. But that's exactly the way that game should have started. And Braden Shin talked after the game about what led to that moment. I thought it was great. Panger texts me before the game, get five goals or five shots, five hits, but uh, obviously got none of that. So I guess I got a five for Bobby tonight. Five minute, of course, the major penalty for the fighting. And God bless him. He's an old school player. He knew it was kind of twofold, right? The road trip hasn't gone as this team wanted it to. And on top of that, Bobby Plager would have absolutely adored watching that be the way that things opened up in that game. And Bobby adored Braden Shannon, his work ethic, too. You know, like he was very close with with those guys. And Shannon, of course, who's been in the organization for some time now. Uh, Joey actually said on the post game he texted Shannon after that one and said, hey, way to go, Shannon. That was awesome. And Shannon responded to him and said, thanks, Brad, man. He said, five for, five for number five tonight, which I thought was really That's cool. Awesome. So, uh, look. That's what you need. That that to me is is the not pulling on the same rope comment that Craig Berube makes and has made. Not that the guys aren't fighting, but they don't have that push that Braden Shen does, right? Like they just don't have that 
that focus into the game that Braden Shen does to start things off. And I think for a while there, the Blues did, but they got away from it. And look, that one probably was hard on Braden Shen and David Perron not being able to come out of, on a victory uh, because they know how close Bobby was to this team and how close that their relationship was. Not saying the other guys didn't feel the uh, the pain as much as those two did, but I love that Shen started the game off. He set the tone right, and I think he, he I think he did that for his teammates too, of saying like, "Hey guys, it's emotion, but we got to get into this game." And he went out there and he did that for him. I also love that, like, so Alex Steen was on with the fast lane yesterday. And if anybody missed that conversation, by the way, highly recommend checking that out on the podcast page. He was tremendous talking about uh, Bobby Plager. And the impacts that he had, not only on that team, but on Alex Steen and this organization in this city. And I love that Shin is a guy that's going to continue carrying that on, right? Mm -hmm. Like You've got other guys. Perron is certainly one of those guys as well. But without having play Bobby Plager in that locker room, you, you, you're missing something. You're missing a little bit of a heartbeat of this St. Louis Blues organization. And I'm glad that they've got a guy like Shin to be able to carry that on into the future because I don't want to lose that. That's something that you've got to keep within that organization. And I think Shin's a guy that will continue carrying that on. We've, we are going to continue, by the way, remembering Bob Plager today on the show. We have a fantastic guest list for you. Coming up at 12.30, we will talk with Brian Sutter. We'll talk with Larry Robinson coming up at 1 o'clock. But coming up next, the former Blues general manager, Larry Plo, is going to join the show. Certainly has a special relationship himself with Bobby Plager. Larry Plo is going to join us next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Well, it's very special. The, new, the Blue Note has been very special, and we've always said it's not the name in the back, it's the Blue Note on the front, so that's what you play for. And I told all the fellas here, the only thing missing with this Blue Note is a parade down Market Street, so please bring me one. And they did. That's the voice of Bobby Plager, who passed away a couple of days ago at the age of 78. Of course, a fun day yesterday, remembering the life and legacy of number five in your program and number one in our hearts, Bobby Plager. And we continue that remembrance today as we head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line and welcome in longtime Blues General Manager Larry Plo. Larry, it is great to have you come on with us today. Thank you so much for taking some time and uh, talking about uh, your memories of Bobby Plager. Uh, I'm sure you have plenty of them in the last uh, 48 hours. You've been able to sit back and reflect with your family. Well, he, you know, I've been associated with the Plager family for years. It goes back to the six, uh, 1964. I played with uh, Bob's brother, Bill, the younger brother. And uh, so I've known the family for a long time and, just a wonderful person. It's sad, sad couple of days here, but like you said, you bring back a lot of great memories. And it was, it was before I got to St. Louis. You, you know, when you're, if you were out in the field and traveling and watching games and scouting, you'd always, when you got to the rink at night, you'd always, when you go to the press room, you'd always look and see if is Bob Plager on there because you wanted to sit next to him and and uh, have a bite to eat, but get caught up with all his stories. You know, he's always had new stories. I don't know how he came up with these new stories, new jokes. Every day he had a new one. He was just an amazing person. And, you know, the guys who played against Bobby, and I did too, and, and you'd be sitting on the bench, and all of a sudden uh, 
you'd see somebody bending over or somebody that got hit with something around his ankle. It was Bobby letting everybody know you're coming into my area. It's not going to be easy tonight. And he, he was a wonderful guy. And he's one, one of them that really, one of the first players, the whole family actually, all three Plager brothers were known for that hip check and uh, middle ice hit, which not a lot of players ever learned how to do. But the Plager brothers, all of them, I remember were noted for that type of hit where they'd catch you with your with your head down and you we used to call, call it the open eye hit. The open eye hit and Bobby was excellent at it. But I'm sure, you know, everybody's bringing back the memories and just a wonderful person to be around and had time for everybody. Larry, in your time around the Blues organization, what what did Bob Plager mean? to that arena, to this fan base, to you as the general manager at the time? What what did Bob Plager mean to you in that time? Well, to me, I think he, he was the Blues. The first team, one of the first players. And when you saw Bob, you, you always thought back the history of the franchise. He brought that face to the franchise right there all the time in front of you. I, I think the fans felt that way. Um, he was such an outgoing person. He had time for everybody. Um, you, you know, when he when he was working uh, in the hockey when I first got there, you knew that you were going to get something from Bob that was honest, and and he was going to always give you that little extra. For me, though, I think it's the franchise. I think it was the face. The face of the franchise goes right back to 1967, and uh, what the fans loved about him on the ice, that he came every night to play, every shift to play, and the other team knew it was going to be a hard night when Bobby was in the lineup. Larry, from that front office perspective, you, you know nobody cared about this Blues team more than Bobby Plager when it came to you know always wondering how the team was doing, always wondering who the new guys were, and making sure that the guys felt comfortable and understood how much the Blues meant. What did that do for you as a general manager to have somebody like Bobby Plager who you could always um, you know, have an ear to talk to or have a shoulder to kind of lean on when you needed some help? Well, you knew that he was getting the players comfortable in St. Louis. He made sure that if you needed something, that he was there to help out. And that, that was important as a manager that you've got somebody that's been through the battles, through the wars, knows people in St. Louis and and telling the the players that this is a great place to play. This is, uh, this is one of the best places in the the NHL to play, to have a family grow up, to be part of a community. Uh, And those things are so important uh, to come out of the front office. And and Bobby always brought that smiling face in the morning. You might've lost or had a tough game the night before what Bobby would always show up and he always had that smile on his face and, he always had something different uh, to say that would make you feel good about being around him and, and uh, being part of hockey. Former Blues general manager Larry Plo joining us here on 101 ESPN. Uh, Larry, one of the things that is so special about St. Louis and this Blues organization is the alumni that stick around, as you were kind of talking about there with Bobby Plager. And it's not just him. It's it's dozens of guys that have decided who came from all over North America that have decided to call St. Louis home. How important was Bobby Plager in building that legacy here in St. Louis as well? Cause he was one of the first to decide to do it. Oh, I think it's, it's, it's uh, huge. It's a big part of 
why players, you know, they know about, like you said, what is the offer to the management? He, he, he makes sure that people know, players know, families know what St. Louis is all about and how they welcome the players. And the amazing thing about St. Louis for me was that even the players that played in St. Louis were traded someplace else and later in their career or any time in their career, how many of them really came back to St. Louis to settle down after? And, you know, when you have players that have been there since 1967, that, that goes a long way. And uh, you could look around a lot of franchises. I'm not sure that there'd be many more players that live in St. Louis that, that have retired there for good. And it offers so much. And, and, you know, Bobby would make sure that you knew about St. Louis. You, if you needed something in St. Louis, he knew somebody that could help you. Larry, I want to go back to your playing days. You talked about playing against Bobby Plager, and you were a part of those Montreal Canadian teams where there weren't that many teams in the league, so you saw the Blues an awful lot, I'm assuming, in a regular season. Was there anything more intimidating as a forward than knowing that you have to skate in on not just Bob Plager, but also Barkley Plager, and then later in in your career, guys like uh, Noel Picard? Well, you know that they they were – I mean, you know the Plager brothers, they competed. You know, Barkley had that offensive skill to his game, but Bob had that ability to, if you saw somebody that was in the corner, that hey, he, he gave him a sticker. He whacked his ankle. He, he just had a way. Uh, he wasn't the most talented player, but as far as competing and wanting to make the other team aware of how hot it's going to be against the Blues, he had that type of talent. And that's a talent also. It might not be a skating talent. It might not be a passing talent, but it's a talent. And, and Bobby always had the ability to make the other team very aware of tonight's game and how we were going to play as a group. How much and did you that carry? You, you knew that when you played against them. And uh, he always made it hard on the other team. How much did that carry over to his teammates, Larry? When, when guys, whether you saw them playing with Bobby, playing against Bobby, how much did that carry over when a guy like that does that on the ice? Well, the thing of it is, is before you go out, even go out, out of the dressing room, you knew if there was going to be any trouble out there tonight or if you needed some help, Bobby would be there. And, and, and like I said, I was associated with all the Plager brothers, so I know that, that came from the whole family. Larry, I did want to ask you, one of the greatest days, I think he has said this himself, in Bobby Plager's life was that parade down Market Street here in St. Louis. What did it mean for you, for this organization, to be able to see him finally get the day that he had been waiting more than 50 years for when he finally got to celebrate a Stanley Cup here in St. Louis? Well, I think it just goes along with being here so long. But I, it, it, everybody was happy for him, the, the players, because you know Bobby, you know he's around, you know what he represents. But I, I think the ability for Bobby to be in the parade and, you know, ownership and management, uh, you know, they took care of the, the, the uh, alumni so well with the parade. I, I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people in St. Louis, a lot of the fans, a lot of the media were very happy for Bob that day because he, he wanted to see that happen so bad. And, and, and he, he was there, and he enjoyed himself, and we all saw that smile that he had every day. 
Larry, before we let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this because over the last 24 hours, we not only have heard uh, what a wonderful man Bobby Plager was, but also uh, what a great prankster this guy was. And I'm assuming that you played against him. You've been around him for a long period of time. Uh, did he ever get you with uh, with any type of prank that Bobby Plager is known for? Well, he, there was this, this funny story with, with – uh, one year we well actually it was nine eleven where we took the team to uh, uh, Anchorage Alaska for training camp, and we took the uh, whole staff, the scouting staff, etc., and we hired some guides and some boats to go fishing for salmon on the river. And uh, you know Bobby always was a crankster, so you knew if there was something happening that it had to be Bob. So we we fished there. We were fishing in the boats, but then we'd also go in along the shore and uh, fish off the shore. So we all had waders. And uh, Billy Deneen, Foxy Deneen, was working with us at the time. And, you know, Foxy and Billy go back a long way. And Foxy was uh, out fishing in the waders, and all of a sudden he's, he's being bugged by water, getting in his boot and his waders. And uh, he couldn't figure it out. And everybody, everybody, we know who it was because it had to be, it had to be Plager. He, he, he poked a, a little couple pinholes in, in Foxy's waders, so every time he'd go out there, he'd get filled up with water. He'd come to the shore, empty it out. We're all laughing like hell. He couldn't figure out who it was, but we knew who it was right away. But th- that was Bobby. He had he had something somewhere. If you knew something was happening, you knew where it came from. Wonderful Larry, person. Last question that I've got for you, Larry. Um, we heard from Jeremy Rutherford the other day, um, blues beat writer. He was talking about some of the stories of Bobby going to management and saying, Hey, you, you need to go get this guy, Brett Hall. And, uh, it, so many other players over the years that he has recommended that the blues should go get. Do you have a story of, of a guy that Bobby came to you and said, Hey, you've got to go get this guy that comes to mind. as you think about your time here as the blues general manager? Well, uh, the, the the one guy that he pushed for with me a lot was uh, was Mellonby. He really liked the, the style of Mellonby play, the way that uh, you know he played that the type of blue that you wanted. You know that that guy that you could depend on every night, came hard to the building, and everything every shift. That's awesome. Larry, I can't thank you enough for, for taking some time out today and coming on to tell some stories about Bobby Plager. I know it's been a tough day for so many people in here in St. Louis and also people like yourselves who had such a close relationship with Bobby. So thank you so much for, for taking some time and sharing some stories. All the best to you and the family, and uh, we look forward to talking with you again real soon. Thank you very much. Awesome. Larry Plow, man. Just uh, – Again, we, we learned this so much yesterday, BK, of the people who were impacted by Bobby Plager. But then to hear, again, from another front office perspective, because John Davidson, we talked to yesterday, his stories came more from playing with yeah. Bobby. But when you get a guy like Larry Plough, who, yes, he played against Bobby, but it, it more so impacted when it comes to playing the general manager role and seeing a guy who was so passionate about his hockey team, that's the part that gets me to this day, man. Yeah, it's everything. It, it is. And I thought uh, Larry said it perfectly when he said at the beginning of that interview, you know, Bob Plager was the St. Louis Blues. He he was 
the beginning, the middle, the end. It, it, he he is the St. Louis Blues. Mm-hmm. He's the personification of this team, and he's going to be dearly, sorely missed here in this community. Um, and I'm I'm hugely thankful to Larry Plo for giving us a little bit of his time today Man, re- to be able to talk about real it. Real quick, BK, yeah. just think about this. Like Bobby Plager would push for guys when he knew their work ethic. And look, I mean, Brett Hawley pushed for, and we all know how that paid off. But he pushes for guys like Kelly Chase and Tony Twist and look at the impact that they had. Pushed for a guy like Pavel Dimitra. Look at the impact he had. Barrett Jackman, a longtime St. Louis Blue. And then a guy like Scott Mellenby. And yep. look, I know his time was short here in St. Louis, but if you go look at the 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 four, the four years that he was in St. Louis, look how look how competitive those teams were. I mean, he was in the playoffs every single year that he was a St. Louis Blue, and he was impactful in those playoffs. So a guy like Bobby Plager, who was a coach, a broadcaster, a scout, a player. He knew what player would mesh well with this Blues team, and every person that he talked about that needed to come here paid off big time for the Blues. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley, we'll continue remembering the incredible legacy of Bobby Plager throughout the day today. We've got Brian Sutter coming up at 1230. Larry Robinson, the Hockey Hall of Famer as well, joining us coming up at 1 o'clock. Coming up next... It seems I think he can continue to get away with this answer on Carp. We'll talk about it all coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. It might help someone that has more flexibility that can play multiple positions because you know, in the end, um, if you were to carry, say, four outfielders, you're, you're pretty limited in what you can do late in the game. Whereas if you have five, it's a little bit more traditional. So, um, again, no roster decisions have been made at this point, but, um, you know, certainly a tie goes to the runner if you can do more than one position. That was John Mosaloc the other day talking about the Cardinals' final roster decisions. I always love it when you've got Schilt or Mo. Schilt will typically say, you know, I. Oh, we haven't talked about that yet with the player. And that's couching it and basically confirming whatever you're asking. Mo will say, hey, no roster decisions have been made yet. We all know. I mean, they're, they're less than a week away now from opening day. Most of these decisions are not reliant upon what happens in the Cardinals' final spring training. No roster decisions are made, but wink, wink. <laughs> We've already made the decision in having that extra outfielder. I do think that he kind of gave you some hints at what this roster is going to look like on opening day. And with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We are live from the new E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. I think we know for certain as of today, the following players will be on the Cardinals uh, on opening day. The typical eight, minus Harrison Bader, so seven, that you would have in your position players. And then Kisner, Carpenter, Williams, Sosa, Thomas. I think those five guys, we have pretty strong indicators they're going to be on this team on opening day, which essentially allows you one spot for Jose Rondon, John Nagowski, or Austin Dean for the final spot on the roster. And after hearing him say that, sure as heck sounds like that's going to be Justin Williams. Well, Williams is already – I counted him. Oh, you counted Williams. I think Williams. he's in. So I it think comes Justin down. Williams is going to start on opening day. I do not think it's going to be Lane Thomas. You don't think if it's it was going to be Lane? Gonna, if they felt confident that Lane Thomas was going to be a, a, a starter for them, I think they put him in center field yeah. and they keep um, Dylan Carlson in right. 
the fact that they're going with Carlson in center with Bader out, Tells I think signifies to me that they're going with Williams because of his late performance in spring training. So then his comments right there talking about how it's nice to have that flexibility with a fifth outfielder. That's how you get Williams and Thomas is guaranteed. But it's four for right now because Bader's going to be on the IL. So are they going to put another outfielder or are they going to view Tommy Edmond as that fifth outfielder? Because That's a good question. then the fifth outfielder is your guy, John Nagowski, and don't say it's going to be Austin Dean. Are we sure? No, I'm not sure because Austin Dean's hitting the baseball well right now. Double zero. Stop single it. Zero. He's single zero. <laughs> oh. We've got to get this corrected. People are going to get real mad at us, People hate us, Tanner. this roster. People hate us, Tanner. But look, if you say Austin Dean's hitting the ball well, then I'm going to come back at you and I'm going to argue it with, well, so is John Nagowski. The other thing is, I think you can make a legitimate case. Are we sure John Nagowski's worse in the outfield defensively than Austin Dean? Because I'm not. I've watched Austin Dean so far in spring training, and Tanner, I know you have as well. You've been glued to this stuff. <laughs> I don't know that Austin Dean's great defensively in the outfield. In fact, no. Let me rephrase that. I know Austin Dean is not great in the outfield defensively. He's probably slightly below average to legitimately below average in the outfield. I think John Nagowski's probably pretty similar. And so if you're telling me I could have one of the two and one of them has been legitimately one of the best players so far in all of spring training, much less for the Cardinals camp in John Nagowski, I would lean that direction. But, man, that quote from John Mosellock would seem to indicate that Austin Dean might be the guy that has the lead over Rondon or Nagowski. In which case, guys, I just simply have to ask this. Did anything that happened in spring training matter? Did anything that happened in spring training actually matter? Well, this is what you told me when I would be like, well, look at the spring training numbers. And you're like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter now, apparently. Because Nagowski and Rondon have been two of the Cardinals' best hitters in spring training. And if you go into the season with neither of those two on your big league club, it would seem to indicate to me there was no way that anybody was winning a job. Which means that the farce of this competition was everything. It was a complete farce. It was fake. It wasn't a real competition. We always look at it as competitions, though. But I would imagine if you're a part of a front office like John Mozeliak, like you have names etched in. Like you go into spring training that says this is our 26-man roster for this season unless somebody changes our mind. But when it comes to changing our mind, I would imagine that there's some asterisks next to those players of, okay, well, it's got to be this guy because he has an option. It's got to be this guy because he has an option. Like, nobody's going to change your mind on Edmundo Sosa because he doesn't have any more options. Right. Nobody's going to change your mind on Lane Thomas because he has options, but he's got to play. Nobody's going to change your mind on Matt Carpenter because he's making $20 million if he's not playing there. Kisner, same thing. Kisner, the same thing. So you, you have those names kind of etched out. And then you go into camp and saying, okay, well, these guys were great. These are going to be our first call-ups. That's what I would imagine that you do in this situation. But here's the part that I'm on. And I think I talked about this a couple of days ago with you guys, and I know you both are as well. Edmundo Sosa has no, has no place to say, well, he deserves this spot because of the option. And I get that you've, you've invested eight years into him, but... He doesn't have that anymore because somebody has outplayed him and that somebody literally just came into the organization off of a spring training invite. Unfortunately, we know how this goes. They're gonna what they're doing is basically saying we would lose Edmundo Sosa if we didn't take him on the major league roster, and so they're going to keep him on the major league roster right. for the time being. And the first month of the season, we said this last week, I think it was, Alex, and it's it 
it appears to be true, I think the Cardinals are using the first month of the season as a tryout. And that includes for Edmundo Sosa. It includes for Justin Williams, who's going to get quite a bit of run. I would imagine Lane Thomas will get quite a few opportunities in that month. All of those guys that are in the outfield while Harrison Bader is out, they're getting a pure tryout right now. The rotation, the back two spots in that rotation right now, that's a tryout basis to see who stays in there whenever you end up getting Miles Michaelis and KK back into the rotation. So uh, this first month, treat it like a tryout. However, there is one guy in particular that really needs to be treating it as a tryout, at least in my opinion, and that would be Matt Carpenter. The other day, John Mosellock was asked about the spring training for Matt Carpenter, and as you hear this answer, I want you to keep in the back of your mind, how long do you think this can still be John Mosellock's answer? Well, I still think there's ways to to try to find some at-bats for him. I don't think I would draw too many conclusions just solely based on spring training stats. Um, you know, obviously there's some things he's doing well in terms of exit velocity, um, sitting to some tough luck, but reality is, is you know, this is it hasn't been a, uh, an outstanding camp from just a pure statistical standpoint for him. But, you know, overall... I think there's going to be some opportunities for him. Uh, 162 games is a long time, and you always have to find ways to keep people fresh. And so I still think there's going to be some at-bats for him. T-Bone, you got my sounder ready for me? Uh, oh. Which one are we referring to? Well, I think the one, I that, the, one that, the one that plays on Matt Carpenter. The one that is ta- thank you. That is what's tagged to Matt Carpenter. Guess what, BK? That means, well, he's hitting the bar ha- ball hard. Okay, well, he's going to play. Well, he's, he's, he's competing good at-bats. Well, he's going to play. All of that, basically what he just said was he's making $18.5 million. He's going to play. Matt Carpenter is one for 33 with 13 strikeouts and seven walks so far in spring training. But we training. just established spring training doesn't matter. I agree with that. I'm the king of that statement. <laughs> you're getting pretty close to spring training meaning a little something when you're a guy that over the last two years, your track record is that you've struggled at the plate, that you're a little bit behind with your swing, you can't catch up to the fastball, and then you go one for 33 with 13 strikeouts in spring training. Oof. That's where it starts to look like it might matter. Like John Nagowski, I think it kind of matters for him when you are basically batting 500 throughout the spring. Right. Same thing for Matt Carpenter in the other direction. When you're one for 33, it starts to open my eyes of, okay, this might just not get fixed. Mm-hmm. And so right now, I can listen to John Mosellock and I'm like, I disagree with you, but okay, you can say that for now. I get it. Maybe there are some underlying things that they look at and they're like, I like it can disagree with it but at least there's maybe some explanation there I don't think you can say this too much longer though I think there will come a point in time and I would say it's probably about a month into the season where the Cardinals can no longer say it's a long season it's 162 games you're going to get your opportunities no at that point in time I think Jose Rondon deserves those opportunities more than Matt Carpenter because he has proven in spring He's a better hitter at this point in his career than Matt Carpenter. And let's be honest, there ain't a whole lot of difference in terms of their defense. So I'm fine with him saying this about Carpenter now. If he ends up starting the season similar to the way that he has played throughout the spring, that cannot be the case a month into the year. It just can't, man. I can't listen to this a month after when if he's still looking like this in regular season play. Can we quit using the excuse of he's hitting the ball hard? That's the one that makes me the most hey, they, upset. They used that excuse back in, what, 2017, and he hit 40 bombs that season? It was true I, that year. It was true that it's year, It's true yeah. right now. It's not true right oh, now. Okay. With Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon <laughs> Guiley. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Questions and answers is coming up next. 
This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Let's go with this one from the three one four. Guys, what do you think of the Cardinals' rotation right now after watching what we've seen so far from Ponce in the spring? He makes me a little bit nervous. A little bit nervous? Makes me really nervous because he can't get through four innings for you. I'm fine with my first two. Flaherty and Wainwright I am 100% comfortable with. I am trending in the right direction with Carlos Martinez after his last couple of starts. Uh I know. Keep the puke in your mouth, T-Bone. John Gantz. I feel okay about, but there's still a little bit of edginess with me, and Ponce de Leon is the one that makes me concerned. But if there's one guy that I'm concerned with, then it's not as much of a problem for my bullpen than what I originally thought, where it was going to be Martinez, Gant, Ponce. Three out of five days, your bullpen's going to be thrown in the fifth inning. Yeah, I think what this does is it makes it, it puts more pressure on Carlos Martinez. Yeah. Carlos has to be good this year. Or at least to start the season, he has to be pretty darn good. Because if he's not, if he ends up, if you've got a situation where Carlos goes three or four, and then the next day you get five out of Gantt, and then you get a start out of Ponce that you're expecting when he goes in four or five, okay, well now you've had less than 15 innings in a three-game span, and your bullpen is just absolutely fried because they've basically pitched the majority of those three games. Right. And you're going to need either Flaherty or Wayno to basically give you a complete game in the next one. That's where things get tough. But as long as you get pretty solid outings consistently from Carlos, you can deal with a fifth starter that gives you four or five strong innings. That's perfectly fine. Almost every team in baseball has that. I know it hasn't been the case at times for the Cardinals, majority of the time lately, uh, for the last decade basically. (laughs) But most teams, this is what they live with from their fifth starter. I'm not too worried about Ponce. It just puts more expectations on Carlos going into the year, Tanner. Boys, I'm not going to lie. I'm really scared about the rotation coming into the year now. Oh, who could have seen that? Yeah, that, is, <laughs> that is brand new information. Wayno is the only one that I trust heading into opening day. Hold up. How do you not trust Flaherty? Flaherty, to me, looks like first half 2019 Flaherty, where he was 4-6 and six with means, a 4.6 ERA. That you can't just have means, that this year. That just means second half Flaherty comes after first half Flaherty in 2019. That's right. Does it, though? But then I look at Seamart. I have zero faith in Carlos Martinez. The, the dude's dude been a roller coaster. Six scoreless innings the other day. Yeah, and I bet when he start has his first start, he's going to go two innings and give up probably like eight or something. He's had uh, one really bad start, then he has a good one, then he has a really bad, and then he has a good one. So no faith in Carlos, no faith in Ponce. Gant, I'm okay with. And like I said, Flaherty scares me heading to the season because he looks like first half 2019 Flaherty, which this Cardinals team cannot have. Boy, you need the weekend, T-Bone. Yeah. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers from the 618. Guys, what's the issue with the Blues right now? And do you think that they're missing a game-changing type of a player like O.V., Crosby, or Eichel? Is that what they're missing right now? No, they have plenty of those guys. Tarasenko, Schwartz. Kairu, O'Reilly, Perron, basically their top six are game-changing guys. Their problem right now is they're they're trying to get guys up to speed, which is trending in the right direction. Tarasenko and Schwartz are looking really good for them. Um, they're trying to get guys on the same page, like a Mike Hoffman and a Tory Krug. And frankly, they're just they're not outworking their opponent in the offensive zone. I think that's the biggest issue right now for this team. If you go back and look at the last four or five games, other than the San Jose Sharks games, 
there's really no offense. There's no sustained offensive pressure. Um, that, to me, is the biggest area, and that's the area that I think the Blues are really trying to figure out. My single biggest worry about the Blues right now is that Colton Pareko was the guy that made everything work. Um, and that's... Not wrong. <laughs> I don't know that he's going to be at 100% this year at any point in time. I mean, it's almost April, and he's not back on the ice yet, On like, actually in the games. He's skating out there, but... What's he going to be at when he returns? Is he going to be at 60%, 80%? I don't think he's going to be at 100%. I guess we'll find out. But if he's not, it might be a lost season for them. And I know it sucks to say that. I agree that it stinks to say that. But if you don't have that number one defenseman, I don't remember who it was that we talked with. Uh, might have been Carlo Koliakovo last summer whenever it was going into the Alex Petrangelo sweepstakes, and he told us about the Maple Leafs. Hey, one of their big issues for 20 years now has been they never had that legitimate number one defenseman. Yeah. And the Blues had that with Alex Petrangelo, and I think they still have it with Colton Pareko, but this year they haven't. He hasn't been out there for them. So can you win that way? I I think the answer might end up being no. We might be learning the lesson that the Toronto Maple Leafs have been learning over the last 20 years. And they have been searching for for a really long time. If you go back and look at the the past Stanley Cup champions, um, you know, most recently the Tampa Bay Lightning. Victor Hedman is the obvious one there in terms of a number one defenseman. Can go can be the number one but it's not going to be this season because he's not healthy. So you're looking towards next season. And frankly, I think Justin Falk is becoming a number one guy. But you got to have a one-two punch. And I don't know if the Blues have that right now in Krug and Falk. So they need Pareko back. It solves some of the problems. It doesn't solve all of the problems, though, because Pareko doesn't score goals. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, let's talk to former NHL player. NHL agent and NHL general manager. He's basically held every role you could possibly have in the league. He's Brian Lawton. He's going to join us next. Talk about what's gone wrong with the Blues. And I want to ask him, Brian, I need a big defenseman for this Blues team. (laughs) Where can I find one in the trade market? Brian Lawton's going to give us an answer coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Happy to be joined by a man that's held basically every role you can in the NHL. He has been a player, an agent, and a general manager. He is Brian Lawton, now an NHL network analyst. Brian, thanks as always for the time, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Brandon. Alex, how are you guys? Doing very well. So, Brian, I have been on a a voyage, if you will, to try to find the Blues a big right-handed defenseman at this trade deadline who can come in and just stand in front of the net and give them a little bit of physicality to work things out at the back end of this of their defensive pairings. As you look around the league right now, are there any guys that could become available at the deadline that you think could be of interest that are just big right-handed defensemen that the Blues could potentially go out there and acquire? Oh, Brandon, search no more, my friend. His name is Colton Pareko, and when he gets back in the lineup, all things will be fixed. 
<laughs> well, what if he's not himself, though? <laughs> Brian, Brian, if only you could have seen the uh, the just disappointment in BK's face when you said that. I thought you had. I thought you were like, yes, I have somebody. It is David Savard. That's the answer to all of your questions. Right. David Savard is the answer for a lot of teams, but as Columbus hangs around the playoff picture, it may not be a possibility, but he would look really good. Colton Pareko, on the other hand, I'm, I'm half joking and half serious. I wasn't thrilled with his game. He only played 16 games this year, but I was expecting him to maybe, you know, with the captain leaving, I was thinking, you know what, if he could absorb a few more minutes, Tory Krug could come in and play well. Justin Falk can be himself. I feel confident they can come up with either a Scandella or a Dunn that could fill that other top four role, and they'd be really dominant. Um, but for me, you know, Colton, he didn't really didn't take that step forward. I would have thought he, he's down a minute a game from last year, his career high. He was playing over 23 minutes a game last year, down in the low 22s. I expected him to absorb some of that loss. So can he do that once he's back? which hopefully is pretty darn soon. Yes, he still can, but I do agree with you guys that maybe just one more key contributor, at least in the top five, would really help the St. Louis Blues. I had no problem with their game last night, fellas. It reminded me of uh, a story when I was in Tampa. Somebody had come in and basically beat us up the way that I really felt St. Louis beat up Minnesota. We ended up beating them one nothing. And I ran into the GM on the way out in the parking lot, and he said he was just furious. And I just looked at him and said, seriously? You just beat the crap out of us for 60 minutes. We're lucky we won, and you're pissed off? Like, give me a break. Just stick with the process was the message I had for him, and I was totally serious. And it was somebody that was a very good GM, but had never played in the league, and for whatever reason, that was lost upon them. If you have the right process and you play that way, you you will lose some games that you shouldn't. It's okay. You'll win more than your share. St. Louis Blues, it's been a tougher year for them, but they still have the foundational pieces and the foundational structure to really go on a run this year, and I believe they will. From the, from a general manager's perspective, Brian, I mean, that was my next point because from Doug Armstrong's view, he has seen all of these injuries, but he has also watched this team play great for a couple of games and play poorly for a couple of games. So as a GM, do you stand pat there and just put the trust in those guys by saying, look, I know this group is better than what the record shows. Go out there and do it for the rest of this season. I think that obviously getting Pareko back, will. I'd want to see that view of the team. Cause I do think that changes it. I still would be on the hunt because of the quality of the, their team and the opportunity for one more player. Just one more player. If you can somehow work one more player and you know, they, they can do that in my opinion, one more player, not a, not maybe a Taylor hall, $8 million player, but certainly a player in that four to five and a half million dollar range then I think that would be a fantastic move for them. Where Doug goes with that, yes, it could be another D. I certainly think that would be really smart. Could be another forward. You know, maybe just one more guy for their top nine that has a little bit more of a a longer-term history would really benefit them. But overall, you know, the Blues Blues are 
they're not quite where I thought they would be. I'll attribute that to the loss of Tarasenko and Pareko, as well as others for extended periods of time. Um, Minnesota's playing better than I thought they would. I'll give them a lot of credit. But I still think that the Blues are the third best team in that division, and I still think that they are not that much farther behind the Vegases and the Colorados to go on a run and get out of this division. Uh, Brian, you mentioned kind of those forwards. Is there a name that comes to mind if you're able to provide a name? Because we've seen a lot of guys that are kind of on the market that might make sense for the Blues, whether that be a depth piece or somebody who could come in and play consistent minutes. Yeah, I mean, the Sunquist injury bothers me because when the Blues went on their run, I just felt like he was a really valuable guy for them. And the lineup looks just a little different without that piece. So it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, that Taylor Hall type guy. It could just be a guy that you can, you're going to get a very consistent level of play night in and night out. And it might be a little bit more economical for the Blues in terms of expenditure to find somebody like that. And there are guys out there like that. Um, so it, 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 Doug's got a lot of choices. He, he really does. He's got a lot of choices available to him. I think that they are a player or two at most away from really being where they want to be for where their organization is at. And uh, I would be more surprised if Doug doesn't come up with somebody than if he does. He's a very active general manager. He's very cerebral. Um, I, I believe he'll come through again like he has in the past for this organization. Brian, one more question that I wanted to chat with you about. Defensively, I think a lot of people on the outside have viewed this Blues team and said, well, they just don't look like the same team, and they're not the same team. When you take out a Petrangelo and a Bo Meester and a Joel Edmondson and a Colton Pareko, but from the defenseman and the goaltender's perspective, how would you view and assess this team in the last couple of weeks? I would say that you know they're, they're doing their best to try to make forward progress. It has felt strange to watch their team since their return to play in the bubble performance, which was not good. A little bit shocking. There was a lot of uh, different reasons given why that happened. It's really just excuses at the end of the day, and nobody cares about excuses that didn't get the job done. It's a group that has got the job done at the highest level, so it was disappointing. Um, I still like their team, though. I, I, I like their group. I like their coaching. I like their group. I, I like the way they play. I like their goaltender, but he hasn't performed to the level you expect. I think that's a combination of all factors. Uh, I, I'd be pretty patient with him if I was Doug Armstrong, and I think he's shown that he is patient with him. But at some point, that runs out, and you see changes. And I just don't think right now is that point. He is Brian Lawton, one of the best in the business for my money, former NHL player, agent, and general manager. We always enjoy our time with him here on 101 ESPN. Brian, all the best to you, my friend. We'll talk with you again soon, hopefully after the Blues make a little bit of a move at the deadline. I'm looking forward to it, fellas. Thanks for having me on, Alex Brandon. Thanks Absolutely. so much, Brian. Always enjoy it. That's Brian Lawton joining us here on 101 ESPN. How much did he crush your dreams when he said, I got the guy for you, Brandon? <laughs> I was like, oh, he was ready to go. Colton Pareko. He's got a 6'3", 220-pound defenseman <laughs> that's just waiting in the wings, ready to come here to St. Louis and be the savior for our Blues. 
And then he says it's a guy that's currently on the roster that's dealing with a bad back. And I just, the, just wanted to cry. All of the air in the <laughs> balloon completely deflated in that moment. I'll tell you, it's it's interesting. He didn't want to give a name there, but he's talking about a forward there, Brandon. And I think that takes you back to the loss of Oscar Sundquist. I don't know if there's a guy out there who can match that, but he was pretty confident and he kept going back to the fact of there's somebody out there that you can get in the four to five million dollar range that could play in a top nine for you and if you look at some of the names out there there's a Kyle Palmieri who's got very high interest who plays a wing position you could possibly look at that guy we talked about with Vancouver and Tanner Pearson there might be a name that's under the radar that Doug Armstrong could say we need to upgrade this team at some point because like it or not April 12th is the deadline, and if you're going to a Canadian team, it's now a seven-day quarantine. So we might be talking defensemen, but if they feel Colton Pareko's healthy, it might actually be another forward to add to the depth of this team. I wonder, one thing that I would be interested in them potentially doing, I've been talking about trading possibly Hoffman or uh, Sanford for a defenseman. Mm-hmm. What you could also do is trade one of those guys for somebody that is more in the ilk, more of the playing style of an Oscar Sundquist that hopefully plays on the left side because then that makes things even out a little bit. And now when you're looking at that line with Robert Thomas and whoever that right winger is for him, I would imagine eventually it's going to be Robert Thomas or uh, with Robert Thomas and Jordan Kyrou rather. I I want a guy on that left wing that's going to be a little bit more of a four-checker. And I think that's the interesting part, too, because Jordan Cairo has been playing left wing, and he had success with O'Reilly and Perron, but look at the long term this season that he's had success with was on the right wing with Shannon Schwartz. And as much as we say, well, why can't you play the left wing? You play the right wing. Sometimes it's it's, it's the guy's off hand that works really well for them. And if you're going future, Cairo might be the future right winger, so maybe you're going out there to find a left winger. Now, I don't think... It's not that I don't think. I don't know if they're going to trade Hoffman because you got him here, and why would you trade a Hoffman and bring somebody else in that you're trying to acclimate to this roster? Because you needed, at the time, a right-wing presence that could score the way that Vladimir Tarasenko does and Hoffman does. That that's that's the That's the thing that he brings to your roster, and now you don't have those spots on the right side. And on the left side, I would like to have a little bit more of that physical presence. So Hoffman did his job. He, mm-hmm. he did what he was brought here to do. And now, in terms of the role, the fit, and I know how important that is for Craig Berube. It's why he put Barbashev on that top line at one point this year. Yeah, the, the the role, the fit that I need is not a Mike Hoffman skill set anymore. Now, if he ends up being on this roster and he's a guy that scores 15, 20 goals for him this season, more power to him, right? But I, if you're looking for guys that have value on the team, I think it is probably a Hoffman or a Sanford, maybe a Vince Dunn, but then you're going even further into your depth on the defensive side, and I don't know that you want to do you that. You don't want to do that, especially because Nico Mikola has not played in like five straight games now, and it's not like he could just jump in and start playing. Keep an eye on Sanford instead of Hoffman because he's a restricted free agent. You might not be able to afford him next season. Maybe you can turn Sanford into that left-wing option for you, Mike Hoffman being another left-wing option for you, and you keep Hoffman for the rest of the season. There's a lot of things that Doug Armstrong can do. It's just a matter of if believing that move will make you a better team or if it will stunt your growth. Because this goes two different ways, BK. You could make a trade at the deadline and a guy comes in and changes your team, or you make a trade like you did at the deadline when you acquired Steve Ott and Ryan Miller. Steve Ott changed the team. 
Ryan Miller hurt the team, and you don't want to do that if you don't feel like it's going to make the team better. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, there is a bombshell trade that was just announced in the NFL. We'll tell you who it includes and why a team in the NFC just potentially got their franchise quarterback for years to come. We'll talk about it coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Big time news in the NFL. Adam Schefter just announcing that the Miami Dolphins getting to Sean Watson have traded the number three overall pick for Deshaun Watson to the San Francisco 49ers. Don't say Jimmy G, I'll throw this pen at you. For the number 12 overall pick this year, a third round pick this year from the 49ers, and first round picks next year and the year after. So the 49ers are sending this year's first, next year's first, and 2023's first round picks. For the 12th overall pick? For the number three overall pick in this year's draft. So you've got almost assuredly Trevor Lawrence going number one. He will be a Jacksonville Jaguar. I would guess, based on all of the reports, Wilson from BYU, who has his pro day today, he's likely going number two overall to the New York Jets. I would imagine one of two things will happen with this number three overall pick. Either it ends up being Justin Fields or Trey Lance, whichever one they prefer the 49ers do, he's gonna they're gonna be a 49er. Or, 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 or the 49ers just picked up the draft pick they needed to convince the Houston Texans to send them to Sean Watson. That's spicy. That's chess while everybody else is playing checkers. Okay. You're basically, you're potentially, because if, if you're the Texans, I want a quarterback. If, if I'm trading you to Sean Watson, I can't just trade you him. I also need to know what my answer is at the position. And with the number three overall pick, I'm selecting high enough that I can go get the guy that I love out of Trey Lance or Justin Fields. So, so here's my question then. Have the Houston Texans be keeping a close eye on Justin Fields or Trey Lance? Like, I know uh-huh. that they both had their pro days, but if you have Deshaun Watson and if you've been saying we're not trading away Deshaun Watson, are you even scouting these quarterbacks? Because if not, it's hard to imagine that they would be willing to trade for that pick if they haven't even been paying attention to these quarterbacks. I, th- I think they have. Everybody pays attention. To the, like, the Chiefs will even do their work on these quarterbacks just because later on, like 10 years from now, if uh, one of them becomes available, they want to have this to be able to go back on of what their pre-draft evaluations were, right? That's, that's how this stuff works. You always make sure that you check out what the top quarterbacks yeah. are, even if it is just to, like, scout them so you know when you play them in the NFL, you know what they do and you know what they don't do well, so you've got a pre, uh, pre-draft scouting report on them. They're definitely doing their homework, yeah. the Texans are. Otherwise, it is – wouldn't be surprised, but it's organizational malpractice for them not right. to be doing their work on these quarterbacks. So then it comes down to do you keep Jimmy G – and bring a quarterback in to play behind Jimmy G for a year and then have him take over next year? Or can you turn Jimmy G into a – I don't think you can get a first-round draft pick for him, but could you turn him into some assets? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let, let's think about the Patriots, right? We've been talking about them getting aggressive and uh, moving up for a quarterback. What about Jimmy Garoppolo? If I'm the Patriots and I could trade a second-round pick for Jimmy Garoppolo, I might do that. 
that's probably my answer, at least for the near-term future, of what my quarterback or do the Texans, going to Or would the Texans even be interested in a first-round pick that was that third overall and Jimmy G? Maybe, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, maybe you do that. Maybe so that way you don't have to rush whoever the quarterback is. You've, you've allowed Give them, them time. some time. Um, there's a lot mm. of different ways this can go. And a texter, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guys, the thing is, now the 49ers only have one first-round pick. Would that be enough for Deshaun Watson? The 49ers just burned their others true. for the next few years. Totally true, but they have a second-round pick this year. They have a second-round pick next year. And it's not just a first-round pick. It's the number three overall pick. Right. That's a franchise-altering move if you get it right. Exactly. And so I – like. I, I understand that it's not a ton for Deshaun Watson. However, if you're the Texans, would you rather have the number 15 overall pick this year and then you're trading Deshaun Watson, so whoever gets them, they're going to be a pretty good team. Right. The number 22 overall pick next year and the number 25 overall pick the year after? Or would you rather just have one big shot at it and I've got the number three overall pick, I know exactly who the quarterback is that I'm selecting, and that's my new franchise quarterback. Yeah. Give I would that, rather have option B, yeah. personally. Give me that third overall pick and change it. Here's the part that got me, and I told you this in break once the news came out. San Francisco just, like, crushed it with what they – I'm sorry, no, Miami crushed it with what they have accomplished. You traded a Laramie Tunsil to Houston for two, two first-round picks, which is one of those being the third overall. Yep. And then now you've just turned Laramie Tunzel into another two first round draft. After in the draft or not, you got four first round draft picks out of a left tackle that really wasn't that big of a it's not like that was Orlando Pace that you traded away from your organization. Yeah, I mean he he's a top ten tackle Maybe. in the league. And so he he's a good player. Mm-hmm. You'd like to have him on your roster. If you're telling me that I can turn him into four other really good players that help me on my roster, and by the way, Laramie Tunsil ended up getting fifty million dollars guaranteed whenever he signed that contract from the Dolph or with the Texans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll take that. So you're, I get cheap cost-controlled players that are going to be in the next four NFL drafts instead of paying a really expensive, solid, really good left tackle. The Dolphins did pretty darn well with that trade. By the way, there is one other piece to the Deshaun Watson puzzle that we definitely have to take into consideration from the 3-1-4. Guys, but what about the pending lawsuits with Deshaun Watson? You've got to take that into account as well, right? Yes. And so if I had to guess, the 49ers are very content, very happy with either one of the rookie quarterbacks or Deshaun Watson. Yeah. If you're not content with these rookies, if you don't like what you're seeing from these rookie quarterbacks, you don't make this deal because you don't know what's going to happen with Deshaun Watson. You can't put all of your eggs in that basket. Right. If that gets cleared up, if things end up, if it ends up being proven somehow between now and the draft, Deshaun Watson's in the clear. This was not true. The allegations were false then you can make the deal for Watson. If it's not that way, if it ends up this thing lingers or if it's proven to be correct, whatever, well, then you can't make that deal if you're the 49ers, and that's when you end up with Justin Fields or Trey Lance, whoever you like out of those two, and you move forward that way. You've got a really cheap, young, uh, really exciting young quarterback that's going to lead your franchise for years to come. Look, at the end of the day, we all need to be talking about what Miami has done. Miami has turned they, – they stuck with Tua, and we all kind of questioned if they were going to have success with that. But This what, confirms they're sticking with him, by this, the way. Yeah, and, and I think this also confirms that they're about to build a powerhouse around Tua. Because as long as he's good. He, he has to be good for all of this to work out. You Otherwise, don't stick with him unless you think he's good, though. Correct, but they could be wrong. There have been a lot of teams. When has that a get team wrong? ever been wrong with sticking a quarterback and saying this guy's going to be good? Jared Goff. 
How about here in St. Louis? Sam Bradford here would go. I mean, I mean it, we it, don't it, have to bring up the Rams all the time. <laughs> well, who else is there? I'll think on it. The Philadelphia Eagles. The Philadelphia yeah, Eagles. The Eagles. I, I mean, it, it has certainly happened where teams think they're right on their quarterback and they end up being wrong. Right. And if that ends up being the case for the Dolphins, all of this will be for naught. Because if you get it wrong at that position, it sets you back. And mm-hmm. you can be as good as you want to be everywhere else. But if you don't have that quarterback, you cannot win a championship. You right. just can't. You, you can't incubate him enough to where you can completely overcome every other thing that went wrong. Uh, the other stuff can't overcome what goes wrong with your quarterback. You can be pretty good. I think they can make the playoffs, certainly, consistently. But can you win a championship with mm-hmm. that guy? He's got to be really good. But you're right. They've done everything right so far. It's a powerhouse if they do it right. If he's if he's good and they do it right with these picks, you're, you're building yourself somebody who can compete with anybody in the AFC, in my opinion. They can compete with the Chiefs. If yep. they're right about Tua, they can compete with the Chiefs yep. because of how good that roster can be. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. 15 minutes from now, we will dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. But coming up next, Brian Sutter. His number 11 is retired in the Blues rafters right alongside Bobby Plager. He's going to join us. Brian Sutter next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Welcome back into BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario, Brandon Kylie, Tanner Hendrickson with you. We're going to be joined by... Longtime St. Louis Blue, longtime St. Louis Blue captain Brian Sutters. He's going to join us in just a bit, talking and remembering the life and legacy of Bobby Plager as we continue to do here today, just like we did all day yesterday on 101 ESPN. And I'm excited to talk to this guy, BK, because he not only uh, was, like Bobby, a face of this franchise for a long period of time, but Brian, along with Bernie Federko, they were brought into this system by Bobby Plager, played with him, but they were young kids coming to the St. Louis Blues, top picks that had a lot of expectations. Uh, but Bobby not only instilled in them the work ethic from the St. Louis Blues, but also kind of gave them uh, the idea of what it meant to be a captain for the Blues. So I'm excited to talk to Brian about yeah, this. Yeah, very much looking forward to this. His number 11 is up in the rafters with Bobby Plager's number 5. So you know what he meant to this organization, and he certainly understands the legacy that Bob Plager left here in St. Louis. So I I can't wait to talk to Brian Sutter about uh, one of one of the best individuals that we've seen here in St. Louis and one of the most important people in the history yeah. of this Blues organization. And, and if you remember correctly, and I'm sure a lot of people do, they paid attention to the Blues uh, Twitter account over these last few seasons, Bobby made a trip with the Blues out to Calgary on a road trip to go meet Brian and see him because Brian, if you don't know, he basically he, he lives in Alberta still because he's got his farmhouse. He basically is away from society. He gets to enjoy his family, be in Alberta, pays attention to hockey, but Bobby made the trip to go up to Brian's farmhouse to meet him, meet the family, see him, and then they saw each other in Calgary for a game, and these guys have a lifelong friendship with each other, um, so it's going to be fun to kind of talk Bobby Plager with him and to just, I mean, to go back on all of the stories that we've heard. I don't know if he'll be able to tell us any other different ones I'm sure yeah. he would oh, absolutely but there are so many that you would get from a guy who played with Bobby Plager on the ice and was around this organization for 15 years Brian Sutter was drafted in 1976 and then he ended up coaching the Blues as well for a few years there on the back end of his career so he's 
He's been around this organization for quite some time, and uh, you know who's been around forever is Bobby Plager. So he, I, I can't even imagine the stories, whether it be the pranks, the jokes <laughs> that we've heard about over the last couple of days, everything. He, you're not going to get a guy that's been around much longer than Brian Sutter. And, and Bobby and Brian, well, I guess I should say Brian. Brian had the pleasure of not playing against Bobby, right? Like we had Larry Plow on earlier who played against Bobby, Luckily, Brian was able to just be on Bobby's team and not have to be against the, uh, I guess, the hip check that we have all seen on the ice. Um, And this is different, too, because Brian played with Bobby at the end of his career in St. Louis. So Bobby wrapping up his career as a St. Louis Blue rather than a lot of the people we have talked with that were at the beginning of their their career. So we're trying to get a hold of uh, uh, Brian Sutter and talk with them again very difficult man to get in touch with, but we will have him on here at some point. But again, it's it's at the tail end of Bobby Plager's career, and we have spent so much time talking about the legacy that he has left here in St. Louis. And again, you mentioned it earlier, BK, Alexander Steen talked yesterday with the fast lane about what Bobby has meant to this team and what he goes and tells younger players. And if you think of the transition from Bobby Plager, we're going to be talking with Red Berenson a little bit later on today. You know, Bobby Plager was the third captain in Blues franchise history, if I'm not mistaken, third or fourth captain in franchise history. That captaincy went from Bobby to Barkley to Red Berenson. And then the ninth captain of the NHL for the Blues was Brian Sutter. And Brian held it for a long period of time. The legacy that is carried over in this Blues franchise has gone from Bobby Plager to a guy like Brian Sutter who played bled on the ice for this Blues team. That carried over into guys like Brett Hall and Kelly Chase and Tony Twist and Bernie Federko, which carries over into guys like Chris Pronger and Al McKennis, which carries over to guys like Keith Kachuk and then Alexander Steen and Alex Petrangelo, David Perron, these guys that are out there right now. So it's been a trickle-down effect, and I talked with Jamie about this on pregame yesterday. Um, it's rare to see a franchise not take a transition period. Like it's it, if you look at teams like the Chicago Blackhawks, for so long they played that heavy, grinded out style because Sutter was a head coach for them. But then they transition into the talent and the fast paced goal scoring that they have with Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves. The Blues have never steered away from their style that was set by Bobby Plager, right? The blue-collar, gritty, going-to-beat-you-down-for-60-minute style of hockey. That has never changed from where this Blues team has been, and I think that goes a lot to say with what Bobby Plager did along with Brian Sutter on this team. Yeah, I said it all day yesterday, and I, I still believe it to be true today. Um, it, he, he was the through line. like mm-hmm. it, from, from start to where we are today, he was the guy that made everything go. So here's what we'll do. Um, we have coming up here in just about 15 minutes, minutes or so Larry Robinson the Hockey Hall of Famer he's going to join the show coming up at 1 30 as you mentioned we've got Red Berenson as well right now let's go ahead and take a break let's see if we can get back on the line Brian Sutter he was with us he dropped for a second we'll try to get him back on the line coming up next right here on 101 ESPN this is the BK and Ferrario podcast now here's BK and Ferrario into some connection issues with Brian Sutter. Hopefully we'll be able to catch up with him either later today or down the road. We sincerely appreciate him uh, considering giving us some time. He he wanted to do it. It's just a connection issue that's 
It's all there is to it. But let's continue talking about the Blues here with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. So earlier today, we were able to talk with former NHL general manager, agent, and player um, Brian Lawton on the show. And he said, quote, I would be more surprised if Doug Armstrong doesn't come out of the trade deadline with somebody than if he does. Mm -hmm. He thinks that Army is going to be active at this deadline. He thought potentially it would be a forward. We've been on the line of thinking all along that a defenseman makes a ton of sense for this team. Let's stick on that line of thinking. There's two guys in particular that as I was going through ESPN's breakdown of guys that could be available at the deadline stood out to me. They're both bigger. They're both right-handed. They're both defensemen. It's David Savard and the guy that you've brought up a million different times now, Travis Hamanick. Between those two guys, both of them, by the way, are on expiring deals this year. Does one make more sense for the Blues than the other? Yeah, personally, from the Blues side, Hamanick would make more sense than David Savard does because David Savard is one of the top available players at the trade deadline. Uh, I'm trying to go back and look at Matt Larkin's list. I believe Savard was top five on that list, if not top ten for him. He's a defenseman, a right-handed shot defenseman that plays for the Columbus Blue Jackets, which means he's an upcoming UFA. The price is going to be high because he's a top three defenseman for that team. But you're also going to have to pry them away from Columbus's dead hands because Columbus is three points away from a playoff spot behind the Blackhawks. I think he's going to cost you way too much. And frankly, you're going to go in for a rental. And I don't know if the Blues are going to want to go out for somebody that's just going to be here for a couple of months and then be gone. You're going to want somebody who's in the plans moving forward. Travis Hamanick makes some sense. Now, Hamanick is an upcoming free agent, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, $1.2 million is all he's owed this year. So it's not a big contract either that you're taking on. He, he's 30 years old. Um, he averages is about 19 to 20 minutes a game, which is really good. He opted out last season and then was on the injured list to begin this season with Vancouver. So he hasn't played that many games. He's only played 19 this season. But if you want a big, physical-style defenseman who plays on the right side, who can log you a lot of minutes, Travis Hamanick would be that guy for you. Vancouver is on the outside looking in. They're also two points out of a playoff spot, so they're going to be a little bit difficult. But here's the thing. They've played six more games than Montreal. They've played three more games than Edmonton, four more games than Winnipeg and Toronto, three more games than Calgary, who sits two points behind them. So playoffs are going to be difficult for Vancouver. So that's going to be an intriguing team to watch when it comes to the defensemen. Let me give you one more. Yeah, please. Because I didn't think of this name until I just saw it on Matt Larkin's list, uh, who, who does the hockey, uh, the hockey News Sports Illustrated. He put a top 30 list out. Josh Manson plays for the Anaheim Ducks. Let me give you his numbers, BK, because this is going to get you more excited okay. than I think anybody would. Six foot three. Into that. 225 pounds. Okay. And let me give you the description that Matt Larkin put on there for Josh Manson. Trading for Manson means spinning the revolver with more than one bullet in the chamber because his rugged, self-sacrificing style gets him banged up often. But a healthy Manson brings a playoff-friendly game on the right side of the blue line. This would be the guy, along with Hamannick, that I would target. He has another year left on his deal And he as costs well. $4.1 million. So you're going to have to find some wiggle room there in terms of salary cap space. And he also has a 12-team no-trade list. So you don't know what goes into that. I wouldn't think the Blues would be on that. I would guess. I wouldn't think so either. But, I mean, he, he's been playing on the West Coast. He... Oh, 
Well, actually, he's from Illinois, so. I wouldn't think that the Blues would be on his Talking about this guy. (laughs) He's intriguing to me. I think Hamannick would be easier for you to get and would cost less. But this is a guy who would match the style of Joel Edmondson, who so many people have said, man, they should have never got rid of. So I would keep a close eye on a guy named Josh Manson as well, if the Blues go defenseman style, because I'm really surprised Brian Lawton said forward, because defenseman seems to be the area the Blues really need help with. Yeah, they just... Their defense has been the biggest issue for them this season. Um, I I don't think there's any other way to look at it. Now, some of that is because of the forwards. Yeah. Some of the issues have come defensively from the forward unit where it's like they're – we've heard it a million times on the broadcast, the F3 that they talk about all broadcast long. It's not not working for them at times this season. And that's got to get fixed. But it's not just on them. It's also you see it too often where you're watching a goal go by Jordan Bennington, and as you're watching the goal go in, you see a defenseman fly across your screen where he's reaching out for somebody, and it's because he's not in the right place at the right time. Right. And some of it is also just the physicality. How many times have you and I texted each other during a game? It's like, how is that guy scot-free right in front of the net screening Jordan Bennington? How is that still happening? And it's been a consistent issue all season long. So – Honestly, whether you're 6'3 or 5'11 or whoever you are, if you've got a little bit of sand in your pants oh. and you're able to just man up in front of the net. Imagine trying to get that out of your pants. And push some dudes around. That's who I want on this team. So Travis Hamanick at 6'2", That makes sense. David Savard, 6'2", That makes sense. Josh Manson at 6'3", That sounds about right to me. Getting Colton Pareko back helps this this issue. I'm not sure it completely eliminates the problem that the Blues have right now because even with Pareko back in the lineup, you're still probably one defenseman short in my mind on that right side of things. I want one more guy over there if you could get it. Yeah, uh, you you need one more guy, I think, because it gives you depth. And if you go back to that cup run, look at the depth that the Blues had. I mean, Carl Gunnarsson, Robert Portuzo, Joel Edmondson, it was a revolving door for guys in and all had an impact in those hockey games. Portuzo scoring goals, Gunnarsson scoring goals, Edmondson playing physical. You need depth back there. Right now, let's say Pareko is healthy, That your top four is set. Right, Pareko and Scandella, Krug and Falk, however you want to look at that. I don't see Vince Dunn coming out of that lineup. So your revolving door would be Robert Portuzo, Jake Wallman, Nico Mikola. I don't feel comfortable with two of those three names in a playoff game right now. I don't feel comfortable with three out of those three names in a playoff game right now, frankly. I'm not as upset with Robert Portuzo, but I understand how people are not happy with his play right now. Um you got to have a revolving door that you feel confident in. So I think if you go out there and you find yourself a player like a Hamannick, a Manson, if you can get a David Savard, those guys would be my permanent top six, and then that last guy comes in and rotates if you need him to or if you got guys who are injured. Hamannick makes the most sense because he is the cheapest. He's a UFA. You could probably get him back, and he gives you a little bit of protection for that upcoming expansion draft. If you acquire Josh Manson, you might have him taken in the expansion draft because he might be desirable with one more year if he's a physical guy. So I think it comes down to those two names for the Blues if they want somebody. But in my opinion, you need to get somebody on that blue line rather than a forward. Can I give you some of the names that are on this list from ESPN of the wingers that are for rents? 
available. Okay. So these would all be one-year deals, and I don't think that the Blues are going to be looking at a guy that's got multiple years under control if they went the forward route. I, I, it's hard for me to think that, but maybe you want another guy that gives you protection for the expansion draft so somebody else, or he's there for you if somebody gets ex- uh, taken that you don't want them to. Maybe. Um, I guess you could go either way, right. but uh, a few of the guys that are on this list, Connor Garland, We've seen him up close. He'd be fantastic, but I don't see that happening. Um, he's one that is on a one-year deal. Taylor Hall? No. Is he somebody that would be interesting The to guy you? who every team he plays for gets a top three pick? No, I don't think that would be awesome. What about Patrick Marlowe? No. Fourth-line centerman, and basically he's Tyler Bozak for you. Uh, Kyle Palmieri? For the Kyle Palmieri, yeah, take me, my nice Italian boy, but I, I think he's going to be a bidding war. I know Boston is really intrigued with this guy's name, makes a, a little bit more money than I think you'd want. He is Mike Hoffman. So you're bringing oh. in Palmieri. You're, now, I say he's Mike Hoffman. He's more of a two-way forward who plays physical. I think he matches the blue style, but you'd have to get rid of Mike Hoffman for Kyle Palmieri, and I don't think New Jersey's going to take a guy for a couple of months for a guy that they can keep. Tanner Pearson? Would the, love uh, it. Left winger for the Vancouver Canucks. Would love it. Matches Oscar Sundquist's personality, but I think Vancouver's trying to lock him up. He's going to be one that I think would be difficult to get away from Vancouver unless you're giving a hefty price. How about Bobby Ryan? We I, talked about him all yeah. offseason. You, me, and Jamie when it was uh, Rivs and BK. We yep. talked about Bobby Ryan uh, constantly. He ended up signing a one-year deal with Detroit. Is he a guy that you could see that would make some sense for this Blue squad? Yeah, he's a scoring punch, man. Uh, he would be a third-line player for you. Now, he plays the right wing, which presents the problems that we've talked about. Then guys on the left, on the right, where he's are you going? left for him. He's got 14 points in 31 games for a Detroit Red Wings team that I know is not great, but he's effective, man. He's got some scoring punch. He's old. He's a UFA. He would make sense for me. And I think he would match the blue style a little bit better than what Mike Hoffman has. But I think he's going to be a little bit more desirable by other teams. And for me, it's kind of one or the other with Hoffman or Ryan. And I'd rather keep the guy who's been in the system than try and implement a new guy into the system. If you could have one guy of the names that we've mentioned so far within realistic expectations. Forwards and defensemen? Forwards and defensemen. If you could have one guy from that list and add them to the Blues, again, realistically speaking, who would you go with at the deadline? Travis Hamanick. I, as much as you want to find yourself a forward and say, okay, we can substitute him in for Oscar Sundquist, you're not going to match what Sundquist brought to the team, especially if it's a new face. Defensemen are easier, easier to adapt into a system that plays this style if they're big and physical. And I think if you get a guy like Travis Hamanick who's cheap, who can come in, th- 30 years old, matches the style of Joel Edmondson, and put him on that third line with a Vince star, the third pairing with Vince Dunn, I think that benefits this Blues team more than anything when it comes to the other four. I think he'll cost you as much. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We're broadcasting live from the new E&B Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. Coming up next, let's talk with Larry Robinson. He played against Bobby Plager as a member of the Montreal Canadiens back in the day. He is a Hockey Hall of Famer himself. He was on the Blues coaching staff during that Stanley Cup run. Larry Robinson is going to join us to remember the late Great Bob Plager coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. We were playing in Toronto at Maple Leaf Gardens and um, Bobby threw on open ice 
near center ice hip check, and the recipient was Ian Turnbull. And Ian Turnbull went down, and he was hurting, and I think he blew his knee out. And so the uh, the medical staff came out to help Ian, and Bobby came back to my end of the ice and put his arm on the crossbar where I was standing. And he says to me, and he was all sweaty and stinky and everything else, and he says, 23. I go, what? He says, yep, 23. I says, what, what, Bobby, what the hell are you talking about, 23? Yep, 23rd guy I've got in my career now. That was John Davidson who joined us yesterday talking about the life and legacy of Bobby Plager who passed away a couple of days ago at the age of 78. And we're going to continue his life and legacy talking about it here on BK and Ferrario as we welcome in the Hockey Hall of Famer. He is a Stanley Cup champion, multiple Stanley Cup champion, but most recently with the St. Louis Blues on the coaching staff, Larry Robinson. Larry, thank you so much for coming on with us this afternoon to talk about Bobby Plager. And you heard that cut there talking about Bobby Bobby's uh, patented hip check, and you've played against this man. You've seen that hip check up close and personal, haven't you? Uh, yeah, but Bobby was a little older and a little wiser uh, when I came into the league, so uh, I wasn't on the recipient end of, of any of his uh, hip checks, but he, uh, you certainly um, kept your head up when you knew that he was on the ice. That's for darn sure. Larry, when you look back on the on the playing days, let's start there. What was Bobby Plager like as a player? You know, I mean, for for some of our younger listeners, give them a little bit of insight on on who Bobby Plager was back in those days. Well, he was uh, a stay at home kind of a stay at home defenseman, uh, uh, very physical. Uh, basically, he owned the, the front of uh, front of the net, especially in his own his own zone, but. Uh, uh, I don't think Bobby was ever going to outskate you or or uh, out uh, out deke you or anything like that. But uh, you certainly, uh, like I said, you you kept your head up uh, when he was around, and uh, and he was a really good teammate as far as uh, you know being an enforcer if somebody uh, took advantage of whether it was Gary Unger or whomever. You know, Bobby was uh, was right there and in, and in your face. So a great great team guy. Uh, came to play every night, um, hard worker, uh, you know, all of the above. He was, uh, he was what uh, most teams wanted on their, on their back line back in, back in the day. Larry, you and Bobby both from Ontario, and while you were kind of going through junior hockey, Bobby Plager was in the NHL. Did you know of the name Bob Plager or the name of the Plagers before you got into the NHL? Oh, yeah, they're... Their names uh, definitely preceded preceded themselves. I mean, uh, I mean back then, we, I mean that was before the you know the Sutter got into the uh, the league. So they were probably the first, other than uh, Bobby and and Dennis Hull, uh, the first true uh, you know uh, I guess brothers that uh, all made it to the NHL. So uh, definitely definitely knew uh, about the Plaguers, and then it just had, so happened that. One of my first uh, Stanley Cup uh, experiences was against St. Louis. We played, we played St. Louis in the uh, in the semifinals, and uh, the only thing I, the, I don't I don't necessarily remember too much about you know play when I played against Bobby. All I remember that with that division or that uh, series was that it was darn hot in the, the old uh, auditorium in, in St. Louis. I think it was like eighty two or eighty three degrees. So. Uh, it wasn't a lot of fun. 
Larry Robinson joining us here on 101 ESPN. He's a Hockey Hall of Famer, one of the best to ever do it. And, Larry, I, I also wanted to ask you about the personal side of things. You had an opportunity yeah. here in St. Louis, especially during that Stanley Cup run, to see yep. Bob Plager's always around the arena. What yep. was that like to be around him so often, especially during that run? Well, it was kind of it was kind of special because uh, you know Bobby had played all those years, and uh, and you know they 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 had gotten close, uh, you know, a couple of times get got to the finals. The only unfortunate thing was that they ended up having to play against Montreal Canadiens in the finals all the time, and uh, or Boston Bruins who had you know the you know, really, really, really good teams back then. So, um, I, I just, uh, I, I got to, to see Bobby at a, I guess a, a different side. I mean, a guy that had a lot of pride of the fact that, uh, you know, St. Louis was, uh, you know, going for a Stanley cup. And then of course, when we were uh, against Boston, especially, uh, seeing the disappointment when we had lost game six, at home, um, you know, you could see it in his face. And then uh, uh, I remember going going out on the ice after we we beat Boston in seven, and and uh, you know, seeing a, a grown man with uh, tears in his eyes to just finally realize, uh, you know, what was going on. And you know, you're talking about a guy as tough as nails, but here he here he is that uh, with uh, you know a Stanley Cup uh, that I guess. Uh, maybe not everybody felt like, uh, you know, he wasn't on the ice or anything, but he, you know, he played every shift. Uh, he played, you know, he played every game with us and there's nothing. It's, it's sometimes it's a heck of a lot easier. And I know firsthand it's a, it's a lot easier when you're on the, on the, uh, as opposed to uh, watching from afar that, uh, it's, it's sometimes a very helpless feeling. It's so gratifying. And, uh, you know, I think everybody, uh, to a man, felt that uh, uh, this was a not a, just a, a, a great moment for uh, for them and for the team and the and the city, but also for this legend who, you know, gave all his blood, sweat, and tears for all those years uh, in St. Louis, and you know, um, you know, had a, had a couple of businesses uh, going on in St. Louis, and now he is able to tell all his friends and uh, and everybody else that uh, they finally got a Stanley Cup. So. Those those were my my fondest memories. Just to see the uh, the uh, expression on his face when uh, when it was all said and done, and they had the Stanley Cup. That's awesome to hear, Larry. I'm curious. Uh, you've you've won the cup multiple times. You know what that experience is like. Uh, but yep. in your opinion, who's a hockey lifer, just like Bobby Plager's a hockey lifer? What does that mean, or what do you think that meant to Bob to see his name on that Stanley Cup? Well, I mean. I mean, uh, you know, as Canadians growing up, I mean, that's, that's what we, we started hockey and, and, uh, and played hockey for was to someday get our name on the Stanley Cup. And, and, uh, especially for, uh, for a guy like, uh, for a guy like Bobby who played so many, so many years and came close, you, you know, it you, you comes a time where you say, well, gee, you know, is it, am I ever going to get a chance to do it? And then, Finally, uh, you know when when his uh, career is over and done with, and he's no longer uh, on the ice. Now uh, he's outside watching, and uh, sure enough, uh, that day that day arrives, and 
I don't know. I don't. I don't think there are there are words that can express uh, what a great feeling it is uh, to finally, uh, you know, have something that you've uh, grown up and lived your life and uh, sacrificed uh, day in and day out to uh, to do for such a long time that uh, now it's come to fruition. We're talking to Larry Robinson, Hockey Hall of Famer here on 101 ESPN about the late, great Bob Plager. Larry, one of the other things that I loved about that 2019 run when the connection that it had with Bobby was whether it be the gloves uh, or the puck after the wins. I mean, what was that like to see Bobby as honestly an instrumental part of what that team was, the culture of that team, especially after all of those wins during that that big comeback season in 2019 when it felt at one point like it was all for naught? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, what's uh, I mean, Bobby got Bobby uh, was around was around the team, but you know the the. the not the nice thing about it. The, the great, I guess the, uh, the the great thing about it was that he never uh, interfered. I guess is the best word. I mean, he he was part of the ride and a big part of the ride, and you know he would he would do uh, a lot of stuff like in the kind of in the background um, and talk to talk talk to different guys and and be around. Um, you know, at the practice rinks and all that kind of stuff. But he, I think he provided more uh, comic relief and, and took a lot of, because it's, it's a very stressful time for, for players and everything else because there's so much, so many demands on yourself as far as interviews and uh, places you got to be and things you got to do. And uh, I, I think it was a great relief. It was a great relief for, uh, for Bobby being around for the guys because, because, yeah, if you know Bobby, I mean, uh, he always had a story, a story to tell or a joke to tell, and he just made it uh, uh, so much so much easier for uh, for everybody that were playing because uh, you know he did never never took it never took anything really serious. That's well said, Larry. Can't thank you enough for coming on with us today and sharing some of the memories of Bobby Plager, who we are all going to miss here in St. Louis and in the hockey world. Uh, thank you so much. Best to you and the My family, pleasure. and look forward to talking with you again soon. Okay, thanks, Alex. My pleasure. Awesome, Larry Robinson. Man, uh, that's that's a cool perspective for me. And look, we've gotten all of them, but that's one of the best defensemen to ever play the game. Yeah. And to get his perspective, and that's why I tossed that question at him, BK, because. We all know names in hockey now, like Crosby, Ovechkin, McDavid. You hear the name and you you know exactly what you're talking about, right? Superstars, goal scorers. Back then, you hear the plaguer names and you think, that's hockey. Like, that's why I want to play the game. Those guys are heavy hitters. Those guys are guys that leave it all on the ice. And again, that's coming from a guy who is a Hall of Famer. You know what else I love about Bobby Plager and the legacy that he leaves, specifically here in St. Louis, is that it is a uniquely St. Louis story. Mm -hmm. St. Louis loves its blue-collar, hardworking guys that are going to come to work every day and put it all on the line for their teams, that understand and appreciate how much the fans also give to their teams. And that was Bobby Plager in every essence of the word. St. Louis also will adopt you. Mm. Like there, there is there is something about this city, and I'm working St. Louis. I think I'm going to get here one of these days. Where if you are an outsider, 
if you come in and you embrace this city the way that they want to embrace you, they will adopt you. And you become, despite the fact that you're not from here, you are an honorary St. Louisan. Mm-hmm. And Bobby Plager was not born here. He's not from here. But he's an honorary St. Louisan. In fact, I would say at this point he is a St. Louisan. Oh, yeah. You know, and so there, there is something special about his story of being here. And I also love that every guy that we've had on this week, when we ask about whether it be a former teammate or somebody that played against Bobby Plager, a lot of them will tell you, listen, Bobby was a, go- a really good player. Bobby wasn't like a Hall of Fame level player. Yep. But Bobby ended up making a Hall of Fame legacy in St. Louis because it was about more than just what he did on the ice oh, here. Yeah. It was about everything that he did, it, honestly more so, what he did off of the ice after his career than it was what he did on the ice during his career. Oh, yeah. And that's pretty special. He always talked down about his game, right? Like he, I told you yesterday on the air, somebody sent a text in about a joke that he said. He like, my slap shot was so bad that they didn't know it was coming. It just basically stopped when I took the <laughs> shot. Like that was Bobby Plager. He was so self-deprecating about his game. But he knew that people loved his game because he put it all out on the line, just like his brother Bark. And you heard Larry mention Barkley was a, a better player, but they both played the same way. And he is a St. Louisan. And, I mean, I, I was listening to Kelly Chase on the radio on the way in today, and this was the first interview that Chaser did because yesterday was so hard on him, yeah. and rightfully so. And Chaser talked about how it, it would be Bobby showing up at local businesses right like in the mo- in the recent years or the recent weeks and months during this pandemic Bobby would show up to restaurants or he would show up to coffee houses or local businesses that he always went to he would show up to give them his support he would show up to show them that he is supporting them but then he would also come in with advice of hey let's try this why don't we do this like he cared so much this had nothing to do with hockey with Bobby and everything to do with the city that he grew to love and Chaser says it best he says I'm not a Canadian I'm a St. Louisan and I guarantee you Bobby would say the same thing today I'm not a Canadian I'm a Canadian but I'm a St. Louisan and I think that just goes to show you what St. Louis does to people when they spend enough time here with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kylie. we're not done we've got Red Berenson a late addition to the show he's going to join us coming up at 1 30 to continue uh, discussing the life, the legacy of Bobby Plager. We'll do that coming up here in just about 15 minutes. It is 118. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Hey, March is almost over, which means that we're almost done with this app madness that we've got going on. It ends next Wednesday, March 31st. So here's what we need you to do before then. Download the 101 ESPN mobile app. Register your info. you got to do that between now and next Wednesday. And then keep listening the same way that you always have. We've got chances for you, if you continue doing so, to win $500 cash, a Traeger grill, a Nolan Arenado replica jersey, and so much more. It's all part of our app madness. Download the app, listen to the station, make sure you register that info between now and next Wednesday to get uh, registered for some of those prizes. Coming up next, I've got a little bit of a bone to pick with John Mosaylock after a quote that I read from him yesterday. I'll tell you what it is coming up on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. All right, you guys know I'm a big fan of John Mosaylock. 
I think he's really good at his job. Are I we think... sure? Yes, we are positive on okay. that one. I will not take that slander. <laughs> I think he does a great job. I think he got unfairly maligned by the fan base for a few years because he was in a tough spot. However, I understood the criticism. But he's really good. He's one of the, at, at a conservative rate, five to ten best general managers or presidents of baseball operations in all of baseball in my mind. However, I was reading something on Yahoo Sports yesterday, and I've got a little bit of a bone to pick with Mo on this. Uh-oh. So Yahoo Sports is doing a preview of each of the divisions, and yesterday was the NL Central's turn. And what they do is they go and they have interviews that are done with the whoever is the head of baseball operations for that individual team. They ask them like three or four questions, and uh, you move on, right? It's a national preview of an individual team. Typically, the I don't get much from these. I did get a little something from this one, though. So Yahoo Sports asked John Mosellock, quote, In the midst of the Randy Rosarena postseason breakout, you said that his performance would cause you to reevaluate how the Cardinals rank players internally. So have you done that? I think that's a really good, fair question for John Mosellock. Mo's response was this, quote, Yeah, that really got taken out of context, didn't it? Really, what it's about is opportunity. That's partially what we had. To, why we had to move Dexter Fowler off of this club because we didn't want to get into a position where we had another year go by where Tyler O'Neill, uh, the Tyler O'Neills of the world, and maybe Lane Thomas or Justin Williams, they don't get tested at this level, and we then we don't know about them, and then we'd either have to make a move because we're out of options, or we're left with just we don't know and we move them, and so that's what I was really trying to articulate is we uh, we don't want to have a mistake because we weren't able to create an opportunity, end quote. Okay. So I pulled out the audio from John Mosellock, the quote that he gave that this is referencing, because I do not think it was taken out of context. So let's go ahead and play that. And you think in your mind, remember what was just asked, what was stated by John Mosellock there. You tell me if this is an unfair way to view this quote from John Mosellock. That's sort of my greatest fear, like like making sure that we give these guys some true chance. And now, as we sit here today, how do we create that opportunity moving forward? And you have these guys that really want a chance to play, one at bats. And, you know, that is probably going to be the, the, the most important thing we either get right or we can't make another mistake on. He's right. He did say that they need to give them opportunities. I do not think it's unfair to say that that also can be interpreted as saying the Cardinals need need to reevaluate how they rank their players internally as well. Because the way that you find the opportunities or the way that you do that is by ranking them internally. Like, if this Harrison Bader injury had not taken place, who was getting that opportunity? It was probably going to be Dylan Carlson, Harrison Bader, and and Tyler O'Neill. They ranked Tyler O'Neill over Justin Williams and Lane Thomas. That's what they did. Now, they might be wrong on that, but that's what they decided to do there. Lane Thomas might have been the next man up after that. Maybe with this option, Justin Williams might be starting the year down in AAA. That's ranking. And so there is a little bit of both. It can also be that they needed to give that runway. That's part of this and they needed to be better with the way that they were ranking these guys internally. That's part of the evaluations we've talked so much about. Yeah, I mean, rehearing that interview, it did seem like Mo is talking mainly about not giving these guys the proper time to go out there and show them that they are there. But I do agree that you can't you can't go back on the way that you properly went about this because 
you trying to back that up and saying, well, I think that's over-evaluating what I actually said. Well, no, because technically you did exactly what you said your biggest fear is. Yeah. You put guys ahead of Randy Rosarena, or Rosarena was out of options, and you moved on from him. So to say that that was blown out of proportion, I think that's a little too aggressive because that really was what happened. And when you use the word my biggest fear or the words my biggest fear, you're using that because it is your biggest fear. You're not just saying, well, my biggest fear is snakes. Yeah, well, it is. So I think what Mo, I think he's trying to backtrack this a little bit because you don't want to throw people under the bus or throw yourself under the bus, although he did basically admit to failure with this Randy Rosarena one. But there's no backtracking on this because it, it, it happened, and you are not going to allow it to happen again. And by the way, the reason why Randy Rosarena didn't get that ex- is because the Cardinals chose other guys over him. Like, it, it, it is about ranking. Like, that's part of this, right? And so I... I understand what Mo is saying because he's right. It is about creating opportunities, but there's only three opportunities out there every day. Yeah, You've got three opportunities for these young outfielders, and really it, it's closer to two because t- Dylan Carlson's going to be in right field or center field. He's going to be out there every day that he is available for this Cardinals team. So they have determined that Tyler O'Neill is the first man up, right? Because Harrison Bader was supposed to be the guy, but he's hurt now. So now there's another opportunity. Next man up is going to be Justin Williams or Lane Thomas. Right. So it, it is about the evaluations first. It is about making sure that you acquire the correct talent next. And then it is about evaluating them again internally once they're inside of your organization. And then it is about ranking them within your organization in terms of who the guys are that you trust the most to produce at the big league level. And then it's about prioritizing them of who do we keep and who do we allow to go, whether via free agency or trade. It's all of those things. It's all encompassing. And so I think Mo's really good at his job. I think they did the right thing this offseason by trading Dexter Fowler and opening up that runway. I think it is a little bit of revisionist history to go back on that quote, to go back on what this offseason was like for the Cardinals, and to not also include the fact that, yes, it is in part about evaluating and ranking those outfielders because they've done it. And like it or not, that that move is always going to haunt John Mozeliak. It will always haunt John Mozeliak in terms of what happens down the road because if Bader doesn't pan out or if Thomas doesn't pan out or O'Neal doesn't pan out, it's always going to go back to that trade. So you got to at least accept and move forward and try and fix the evaluation. And it could be the one that got away. You know, it, it Let's really hope not. Could. I hope that that's not the case, yeah. but it could be. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. There's still a few days left to sign up and join Michelle Smallman in participating in this year's Michelob Ultra Seltzer Virtual 5K. It's just 25 bucks to sign up. All proceeds will benefit Pedal the Cause. By signing up, you'll receive a premium Ultra Seltzer running T-shirt. Then complete your run anytime before the end of the month. And you can get more details to get signed up for the Michelob Ultra Seltzer Virtual 5K now over at 101ESPN.com. Coming up next, let's continue talking about the late, great Bob Plager with Red Berenson. He was teammates with Bobby in St. Louis from 1967 to 1971 and 74 through 78. He coached the Blues as well here in St. Louis. Red Berenson is going to join us coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. I'm going to toss it in the laundry bin. 
not even on purpose, the jersey kind of hit and kind of fell down to the ground. And Bobby walked over calmly and picked up the jersey and put it in the bucket and then walked over to this player. And he says, uh, you don't ever throw a St. Louis Blues jersey on the floor. Not even by accident. And he goes, if you do, you pick it up, you wipe it off, and you put it in there. That's Jamie Rivers, who you'll hear on the fast lane talking about the late, great Bobby Plager, who passed away a couple of days ago at the age of 78 as we continue his life and legacy here on 101 ESPN. It's BK and Ferrario, and we are pleased now to head back out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to welcome in a former Blues captain, a St. Louis Blues legend, Red Berenson. Red, thank you so much for taking some time and hopping on with us this afternoon. Uh, very grateful to be able to talk with you about your, your good friend and former teammate, Bobby Plager. You heard that cut there talking about uh, making sure the crest of that blue note never hits the floor. And that was a mantra that I guess was started with you guys in that locker room back in 1967. Well, I think it started with, uh, with the former Montreal players that were in St. Louis and at the time, and whether it was Jean Guy Talbot or Jimmy Roberts or or myself, and then uh, Dickie Moore and uh, Ab McDonald, and we had a a long list of former Montreal players. That, uh, they had that tradition, and it carried on in St. Louis, and and it was good. You know, it was it was a good thing for our team, good for young players to realize that there's a lot of discipline and respect uh, involved in. Uh, playing for a certain team, and uh, we had that in St. Louis. Red, we've talked to a number of your former teammates that were on those original blue squads uh, over the course of the last couple of days, and one thing that's really stood out to me, and I know some of our listeners as well, is is how close it seemed like all of you guys were. It almost feels like that was a family that you guys were a part of. Can, Can you give us a little bit of insight into what that group was like to be a part of and what kind of a role Bobby Plager played in in maintaining those relationships, not just then, but over the years? Well, you know, when you put a team together like uh, an expansion team like St. Louis was, uh, you're bringing guys in from from several organizations. So there weren't a lot of good friends that when, uh, you know, I know I played with Jimmy Roberts in Montreal and, and uh, but I'd never played with Terry Crisp or Gary Sabern or Ron Schock and and uh, and neither of the Plagers, although we were in the same organization in New York, but I never played with them. And uh, I'd never played with Al Arbor and, and so on. I played with Talbot, but we were all in that same boat, and we had to kind of come together. I I, I think uh, Bob Plager was uh, one of the glue people because he. Right away, he showed everybody that he was a team player, and yet he lightened up the group. Uh, he was a prankster and a jokester, as you know. He loved to tell stories and loved to tell jokes, and uh, and he got everyone's attention in a good way. And then the way he played, he was ferocious on the ice, physically uh, intimidating. He had uh, uh, such a skill for, for body checking and particularly hip checking, but more than that, diving in front of loose pucks to block shots, uh, uh, to save a game or save a goal, uh, to protect a teammate, sticking up for teammates, uh, he was terrific. So he just added the, to the culture of the team and in a good way, in a fun way, uh, away from the rink and in a, 
in a meaningful way when we were on the ice. And so he was he was popular on our team. And, of course, uh, we became a good team. I think we had a great coach, obviously. Everyone knows that, Scotty Bowman. And he knew how to push all the buttons to get this team to play. And I think he was part of the reason that we were such a close team as well. Red, you mentioned the the pranks from Bobby Plager, and I think we have heard so many of them from so many different people. But it sure as heck felt like being in that locker room felt like you were a uh, you were a group of guys in, in college or something like that. Where honestly, you always had to have your eyes in the back of your head because you never knew what Bobby was going to do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and you know, there was a few guys right behind him too, like Talbot, and uh, they loved to. Uh, they just loved to play jokes on each other. And really, it was to take the pressure off so we could relax and really play the game we all love to play. And so there was it was kind of a, uh, there was a purpose to it all. And we had this uh, powder bag that we used to put powder, white powder, kind of a baby powder on our sticks so our tape wasn't so sticky. And uh, they'd start throwing that around in the locker room. And, and whether you had your, your, your hockey equipment on or you had your dress suit on and that powder made a mess. And so that was, that was another one of Bob's favorites and, and so on. And it just went on and on, but you're right. I mean, the team was close. They cared about each other and then they won. They found a way to win and things weren't as smooth right off the get go. But uh, once we got going and, and everyone realized they were important, they had a role on the team and uh, they played for each other. And then the fans, you know, you can't say enough about the St. Louis Blues fans. They just about adopted that team, and they made the players feel comfortable. They made them feel appreciated, and so on. And we just, and then the owners, the Solomons, were terrific. Mm-hmm. Everyone, I mean, they were like uh, parents to us, and our grandparents, if you would. And so it was just, it was kind of a love affair from uh, that first year of the Blues when they got going. And Bob Plager, he got to enjoy it for 54 years. You think about that as a player, as an assistant coach, as a head coach for a while, coaching in the minors, as a scout, and as an ambassador. And how many players in any sport organization have been with the organization for 54 years? None that I know of. It's incredible. It it really is remarkable that he's been around so long and he's seen so many things within this organization. We're talking to Red Berenson here on 101 ESPN. And Red, I did want to ask you because those Blues teams early on that you were a part of were so good and you got so close. And for 50 plus years, it was always Bobby Plager saying, "I, I just want to get that cup. I just want to see what this town will look like if it gets a cup and what that parade's going to look like going down market street and finally a couple of years ago now he was able to get that cup uh, what it what did it mean for you to be able to see your friend bobby plager finally get the thing that he had waited his entire life to get well and bob wasn't the only one i mean a few of us had, had won stanley cups with different organizations but we all had left a part of our heart in st louis and uh and we all felt that or wished that we would have won a cup or did a little better than we did. And as the years piled up and and people could still say, well, St. Louis has never won a Stanley Cup, it was, it was starting to grate on a lot of people. And we were all so proud. And, uh, and it was great that Bob was there for the celebration and all the games. But we were watching, and wherever we were, 
Uh, I know I watched every game, and, and I, I was so pleased for uh, for the goalie that when they put him in, and then the players that started to play, and and Ryan O'Reilly, his leadership role, and and on and on, all the players, the coach, everyone did it. It seemed like they just came together, and uh, and and what a what a great experience, and and to watch the celebration in St. Louis down by the arch. That was unforgettable, and, and just it was one thing after another. And for Bob to be accepted the way he was, he wasn't just an old player; mm-hmm. he was he still felt like he was part of the team, and he knew all the current players on the team, and obviously he knew all the alumni on the team. But he'd been he'd been living and dying with that team for all those years, in in being, you know, at the games and being firsthand, sitting up there watching, critiquing, wondering, hoping. Uh, when it was going to happen, and when it happened, he got to enjoy it. It was great. It was great. Red, one more question for you. A legendary playing career and also a legendary coaching career. In the NHL, you wanted Jack Adams as a coach for the Blues, but then also your entire time at the University of Michigan. I'm curious, how much of your coaching, how much of Bobby Plager did you take into your coaching career? Well, I took a, I took a little bit of a lot of people uh, – uh, from that Blues team, and you think about it, uh, Glenn Hall and Jock Pond in goal, and uh, and and you know even some of the lessons we learned from them. Uh, Al Arbor on defense, uh, the way he played hockey was different than the way Bob played or Barkley played, uh, but the importance of players like Bob Plager and, and Barkley Plager to our team, whether it was the physical toughness, whether it was just the, the competitiveness. Of Barkley and and Bob was over the top, and uh, when the game started and so on. So I think I, I learned how to, and, and Scotty Bowman as a coach, how he used players and how he found roles for them, and how he put emphasis on certain parts of the game that that can help you win. It might not be in the best interest of all the players, but then once they win, and they realize this is how you win. Uh, so I think I learned a lot more than I than I did when I actually left there but once I got behind the bench uh, whether it was in St. Louis and then at Michigan I learned to appreciate you know how different players can impact the team and and obviously Bob Plager was one of those players. Red my favorite part of the last couple of days is is being able to talk with people like you and just hearing the stories of the memories that people had with Bobby Plager, whether it be a prank that he played on them, a joke that he told them, or if it was on the ice, off the ice, we've heard about some of the parties uh, that Bob Plager was a part of. Is there any other memory, a story that you would like to share with the fans here in St. Louis of something that comes to mind for you when you think of the name Bob Plager? What what is it that that comes to mind for you? Well, when I got to be... uh when I had to take over for Barkley, when Barkley got sick and I was the assistant coach and, and Bob was kind of scouting. But uh, when I had to take over as head coach and Emil Francis let me uh, utilize Bob Plager as our, our pre-scout coach. So he would go into rinks and, and the, of teams that we were going to play in uh, the next game and uh, he would scout them. And then he would call me with uh, his scouting report. And if you remember, our goalie was Mike Liute, and we had we had a young Bernie Federko and Brian Sutter and Babbage and Chapman and Tony Curry and all these young kids. And so 
Uh, one night, I remember Bob went into Washington, and Washington had Gartner, and they had a real high-powered team uh, going, and we were trying to beat those teams. And uh, and so I would ask Bob, well, what were the lines? Who was playing with who, and what was their power play like, and, and who was on defense, and what was their penalty killing like, and what were their strengths, and what were their weaknesses? And uh, so I had this long list of questions, and Bob would finally take red. He said, just never mind all that. Just play a Leute. And it was uh, just, just about fell off my chair, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was right. If we played Leute, uh, we had a chance to beat anybody. And that was, uh, and that was Bob's input. And I'll, let me say one more thing about Bob Plager. As much as he had a reputation for all the things that everyone's talked about, he was a knowledgeable sports uh, or not sports, but hockey uh, teacher. He could have been a, a, a good coach if he wanted to. Uh, he just he just loved the game, and he listened to all the veteran players. And uh, I know he got a lot out of playing with Doug Harvey and Dickie Moore and and Al Arbor and so on. And he he was smart, even in today's game. You know, you could lie, you could make a laundry list of things that you want from your defenseman today, and Bob Plager would would live up to most of those things. He might not have the speed the players have now, but as far as being hard to play against, being a guy that'll pay the price to win, he'll block shots, he'll defend his teammates, he'll be he'll be a, a great guy in the locker room, and he'll show up every night, and on and on. All the things he did back in that day uh, are things that uh, you're looking for now. But he was uh, he knew more about the game than uh, than people realize unless you played with him. So I really enjoyed my time playing with Bob and, and Bark, even though I didn't know them before uh, we were ever uh, teammates. So it's uh, here we are 50-some years later, and we're talking about them. Couldn't agree more with that one, Red. I can't thank you enough, sir, for coming on with us today. It's great to hear the memories, and I know it's been a tough last couple of days uh, for everyone who knew Bobby Plager, uh, whether it was for, from a playing career or just getting to meet him at a restaurant here in St. Louis. So thank you so much for coming on with us today and sharing those memories. Best to you and the family, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Good. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad you called. Definitely. Thank you so much, Red. That's Red Berenson here on 101 ESPN, and I think that is the perfect capper to what has been um, a sad, but honestly, in in a lot of ways, uplifting couple of days and hearing so many former teammates, uh, members of the organization, friends of Bob Plager telling their stories about what their time was like with Bob Plager. Yeah, and and, you know, the part that the part that I started to think about when he was talking about that, that group in 67, 68, uh, we always talk about the Vegas team, right? A group of misfits that just come into the league and go on a Stanley cup run. If you think about that 67, 68 team, not a group of misfits, but a group of guys who were put together on a team in a city that nobody knew about. Nobody knew hockey in St. Louis. It was basically the Solomons that loved hockey that wanted them here. And you get a bunch of Canadian guys Bobby Plager, Dickie Moore, Jimmy Roberts, Glenn Hall, who has just won multiple Stanley Cups. You get guys who played for the Montreal Canadiens, the pinnacle of hockey, and you put them all in the city of St. Louis where you say, okay, you go out there and be uh, be hockey players. And they come together and they put together a team that goes to three straight Stanley Cups. Like that is the That was the start of the group of misfits in the National Hockey League, I think. 
It was, and I was talking to Tanner just to, we're out at uh, yeah. EMB <laughs> Sorry about Studio, this. the Centene Community <laughs> Ice Center. Tanner, we're running a little late. We'll go ahead and double at the top here, and we'll, we'll get into the fast lane coming up here in just about 10 minutes or so. But to finish off this conversation, um, I was talking with Kara, my fiance, about this last night, and we were talking about you know how tight-knit it sounds like. She's been listening to a lot of these interviews yeah. as well. Uh, a lot of these guys seem to be, and it's just a reminder, like, there is something about what sports were 50-plus years ago that doesn't quite exist the same way now because of the money, because of the travel, because of the social media, right? The guys that you're talking about that were a part of those early teams, it was in part because they were all thrown together on this expansion team in this random city that none of them probably knew anything about when they got here. It was also because, like, when they got together, they didn't have this phone in their hands. Nope. They were going on road trips, and it was just them. Or they'd all go to a buddy's house and they'd hang out and party together with them and their wives or their girlfriends or whoever. And then they'd play hockey together and there'd be pranks in the locker room. And like, it's just a different day and age. And that is not to make it better or worse, but it is the camaraderie that they had then. There's still some of that now, for sure. You need a really good uh, dressing room, locker room, um, clubhouse, whatever, to be able to win nowadays the same way that you did then. But the relationships, the bonds that you built back then, I do think are a little different than what is taking place now. In I forgot. It's a little different. I forgot who said it, and forgive me if I'm missing that person because we've talked to so many people. But they talked about how uh, Bobby he loved that 1819 team because they didn't have that. They weren't on their phones all the time. They were just in that locker room together, and it's just it goes to show you how much he cared about guys who were a group of players together in a locker room. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, the last couple of days in particular, not just from us, but from Carriker and Smallman, who have had some unbelievable interviews, the Fast Lane, who have done incredible stuff. Their show yesterday was unbelievable. Check it all out, 101ESPN.com or the free 101 ESPN app. It is all presented by I Promise. We'll be back on Monday at 11. The Fast Lane is coming up next. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise.